All right. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to, I guess, my afternoon session on back pain. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I promise that I have to introduce myself. So my name is David Glick. I have been in practice in the field of pain probably for about 30 years. And uh, my most common patient probably all these years has been post-op back pain. Um, at least it likely made up half of my patient population. But pretty much 90% of my patient population has always been the difficult chronic or complex cases. So I was sitting through somebody's session yesterday, and I think they started the session with the patient statement, like the patient walking in and saying, listen, doc, just want to let you know you're, you're doctor number 13. It's like, welcome to every patient I've seen, right? So one of the things that we've always been able to do is we can't treat everybody, and I don't claim to be able to fix everybody. But the whole idea that, that we have is if we can do something to our first goal is always to resolve the problem, but if we can't do that, at least mitigate the degree of severity and stop it from getting worse and make it easier to manage. So on a post-op low back pain patient that has hardware in their back, am I ever going to make that patient 100%? Of course not. But can I make it a little bit more livable to give them back some function and be easier to manage their pain on a daily basis? Sure. But if we get them before someone had the opportunity to do surgery, well, that can be a whole other ball of wax because then we do stand the potential to make a significant inroad and maybe resolve the problem. Because our first goal as physicians and clinicians is not really pain management, it's pain treatment, right? I mean, how would you feel if you took your car to the car dealer and you tell them that when they step on the brakes, the you know, that steering wheel shakes, and the car dealer told you, well, we're going to show you how to manage that shaking. You want them to fix it, don't you? So do I. So what we're going to do here is we're going to talk about some of the different things that you can do to maybe add to your own clinical examination when it comes to back pain so maybe we can get a little bit of extra information from the patient that might then change how we manage that patient going forward because we want to be able to do something that makes a difference. Okay. Now, if I can just remember where I put the thing to advance the slides, we're in good shape. So I have nothing officially to disclose. We have some objectives, like every other session does at Pain Week. We want to be able to identify some of the primary and secondary pain generators associated with back pain. But I also want to call to your attention that a lot of the things that we do, which we already talked about, like with imaging studies, that sort of cloud our judgment and maybe lead to a red herring that might be causing some of the problem. So we want to look at the clinical utility of imaging studies, but we also want to talk about enhancing that clinical exam. That's the goal, period. What can we do different so that we gain more information? So just like we talked about neck pain the other day, basically back pain itself is not a, it's not a pathology, it's a symptom. Who in the room has a knee problem? Raise your hand. Okay, so shout out what your knee problem is. Okay, almost everyone kind of gave me some sort of a diagnosis, but the diagnosis was never knee pain, was it? But yet we treat people for back pain. So let's say you have a knee problem and it's caused by a meniscus tear. Show of hands, who's going to do a cruciate ligament repair to fix that meniscus tear? I mean, it, does, it doesn't make sense, does it? But yet, we throw darts at a patient with respect to treating back pain as if it doesn't have a single diagnosis. Well, that's kind of a wrong starting point. All right, just like with neck pain, there is no single treatment for back pain. So what I love is it never fails whenever I do one of these sessions, someone will catch me at the end of the, at the, end of the session and they'll start asking me about the different things. Like, what do you think about 
acupuncture? What do you think about manipulation? What do you think about physical therapy? What do you think about these injections? What do you think about those injections for treating back pain? It's like, well, you know, they all work. The whole key is knowing which patient needs what treatment at what time. So that means our secret to success has nothing to do with whether or not the procedure works. It's how good are we at triaging that patient, right? So we talked about the example before too. Sorry for the quick review, but I know some of you were not in that session. So when it comes to the idea of what the patient has, we are all highly skilled clinicians. We are all really good at what we do. But the reality is some of us have certain tools, some of us have different tools. So when I start talking about tools, you know, the easiest thing that I can use as an example is like a straight or slotted screwdriver and a Phillips screwdriver or a hammer and a screwdriver. Is every job that we have to do around the house going to be fixed with a screwdriver or a hammer? Well, actually, it depends on who you are because I know some friends that have no aptitude with respect to fixing things, like my friend Steve. I don't think he knows what the business end of a screwdriver is, although he's the nicest guy on the planet and he's very good at what he does, just fixing things are not his ball of wax. You know, and I'm the exact opposite of that because whatever it is that's broken, I want to get my hands in and take it apart and fix it. So, you know, I spend my time in the garage fixing and restoring cars. That's how I get my joy. But so some of us are round physicians and square physicians and clinicians and trapezoids, and yet we have patients that are trapezoid, square, round, moon-shaped. If you put the square doc with the square patient, what happens? All the world is great, everybody's happy. But if you put a trapezoid patient with a square clinician, what happens? Well, that tool's not gonna work to fix the problem, but everybody assumes that it should. But is that the patient's fault or is that our fault? So, most important tools, which is my kind of soapbox for everything that we do, is the history and the clinical examination. Um, many of you that have heard me speak before know that I've sort of migrated out of hands-on clinical care. I got to my burnout stage, so um, and for those of you who say you're too young to do that, I'm older than you think. So I thought that when I sort of transitioned into a telemedicine type situations for consults, that I would be at a loss because it was my hands-on clinical examination skills that I thought made me who I was. But it turns out that I am also a skilled interrogator, and no patient ever volunteers all the information that you need to get to be able to treat them. So sometimes we feel like we have to torture them to get the information out. So as it turns out, I spent a lot of time working on that history to get all the details that somebody doesn't want to volunteer. And then, because I do have a little bit of different clinical experience than most, because we all get good at what we do every day, don't we? So because my pa patient population was the train wrecks, I'm pretty good at seeing what everyone else seems to call zebras, and I think they're horses, because I see them so often. So I'm able to recognize these things even on a telemedicine consult sometimes, and it's amazing what you can get when you have to use somebody else's hands. So I'll have friends and family members or whoever else is there on the consult sometimes acting as my hands. And then pictures tell a lot too, and you'll see an example of that. So the whole goal here is, instead of throwing different treatments out of the patient, like for those of you who are interventionalists, I apologize if I insult you, but I never liked the concept of a diagnosis by a series of spinal injections. Now that being said, 80% of the things that we did as part of the group, the practice I was with, involved interventional procedures. 
but we would make a specific decision about which procedure to do on which patient first so we didn't have to do a diagnosis by a series of injections, especially since more often than not the patient might have multiple pathologies contributing to their clinical presentation, and if you just hit one without the other, you'd overshoot the problem anyway. So the whole goal is drawing a bullseye in the patient, what does this patient need, and then you increase the likelihood of a successful treatment. We were talking about this earlier, as a matter of fact. This is like the worst thing that we have to deal with these days, isn't it? Which is time. Time is the root of all evil. So it used to be that many of us had maybe 15 minutes for a consult schedule, sometimes maybe half an hour for a new patient. Man, my, the patients that I was getting for the last few years, I was scheduling three or four hours for a new patient consult. It's unheard of in a regular situation, which is why I had to jump over to workers' comp, because they're the only ones who would reimburse for that, especially when comp sent us the patient. So now with EMRs that were supposed to be helpful, what happened? Instead of the 15-minute consult, you're spending eight minutes with the patient, seven minutes completing the EMR, and then the EMRs are so generic, nothing even stands out anymore. So if you have to go back and read that EMR, you can't even find the information that you were looking for. It is a mess, isn't it? So to compensate for that, we start to rely upon other things like technology, because even patients think the latest, greatest must be the best. Not true, right? So in here, we started filling that in with MRIs. And for those of you, and other imaging, and for those of you who didn't hear my imaging session the other day, aside from the fact we're doing it again on Saturday, this is all about to fall apart January 1st when CMS starts requiring this new decision point system for being able to order imaging studies for a whole bunch of classifications, which means they're going to start looking for the exam findings that we had not been doing because we didn't have time that we started doing MRIs for before anyway. So I have no idea where that's going. Somebody asked me if I would put a, a session together on that, and I can't because I have no idea where the cards are going to fall. So it turns out, as I pointed out before, and we'll show you in, in general a little bit today, no one ever validated the ability of the imaging studies to identify those pathologies or the clinical significance of them. So that becomes a false narrative. One of my favorite with respect to the low back is this one, which some of you have seen before, where Jensen took almost 198 patients that had no back pain whatsoever and did MRIs of their back. And in that, 52% of them had a bulge or a protrusion at, at least one level. 38% had problems at more than one disc. So think about this for a second. This is 50% of the asymptomatic patient population has disc pathologies. Hmm. Um, Jarvik did something very similar. They took 148 symptomatic, asymptomatic individuals, some without ever having back pain at all, but at least everybody not having back pain at the time. And his numbers were 83% of them had some kind of a pathology on imaging studies. So McCullough did one step even better. Because of all of these pathologies that seemingly were meaningless, McCullough took something about the, the clinical presentation of all of this data being somewhat meaningless, put it on the bottom of every radiology report, which sort of minimized all of the bad things that you hear when you get an imaging study report. And then in doing so, what happened, they found that all of a sudden they had less utilization of services with respect to physical therapy, injections, and opioid prescribing. But I do admit the authors did not say anything relative to a change in clinical outcomes. But at least they stopped using stuff just by discrediting the epidemiology relative to the study that you see. 
So sometimes all you have to do is adjust the words. The flip side of that equation was this study that came out of China, where basically they took 3,107 patients who presented to two ERs during the month of January 2013 with acute low back pain. So these are patients clearly complaining of an acute pathology. 58.3% of those were completely normal MRIs, and of the 32.7 that had pathologies, they had poor correlation with the level of the pathology and the clinical examination findings. Well, that kind of says that the MRIs are less credible than the clinical examination, doesn't it? But yet, what's the first thing we rely upon when we see an MRI finding? Scary. I'm going to give you one, one, one other little thing. This January, I had the pleasure of coming to Vegas during the CES, the Consumer Electronics Show. What an interesting experience. Talk about sardines. Vegas was ridiculously crowded every place you go. But I worked the floor for a device manufacturer. Kind of wasn't high demand because I was sort of the physician on call. So everybody was coming up to me with their pain problems. And do you know, out of the hundreds of people that I spoke with in two days, not a single person told me what their complaint was first. Do you know what every single one of those patients told me first? What their MRI findings were. And I took care of a couple of those with telemedicine consults after the fact. And they had nothing to do with the MRI findings. So my other favorite one with respect to the low backs and MRIs is Bornstein's study, because Bornstein's study was kind of cool, and I talked about it in the imaging study session too. What Bornstein did is he said, I'll bet if you had a disc herniation but were asymptomatic today, 10 years later, you're going to be more likely to have back pain. Well, it turns out you were less likely to have back pain if you had a disc herniation that was asymptomatic 10 years before. So my running joke that I like to use is that means having a disc herniation is a protection against having back pain. Right? All right, so I also pulled this one out of the imaging study session, and I'm not going to really go through how to interpret an MRI, but if you're still here tomorrow and you haven't had that session, come in the afternoon, and we'll, we're going to go through that in greater detail. But I wanted to put this up here because what's important to note as we start this little voyage going forward for backs is you can't believe everything you see, plus the imaging studies give you more information than you think they could anyway. So here's the clinical scenario. This patient basically has back pain radiating down the back of the leg that occurred about two weeks before the MRI was taken. Okay? And then I will tell you that every treatment was based upon, that this patient had, was based upon the written interpretation of the MRI findings, basically. So what does that MRI finding show? It shows a disc herniation. What level? L5-S1. And remember, so we usually play a little game here, which is like, whose line is it anyway? So you guys get extra credit points for answering the questions. It's just the points don't matter. <laughs> so this shows a disc herniation at L5-S1. So let's take the vote. And I probably should tell you guys who sat through the imaging study, you can't because you already know the answer to this question. What is the likelihood that you think this disc herniation is guaranteed to be the root of the patient's underlying pathology? And by the way, we did snag this patient away from being, having a surgical decompression. What was that? 41. I don't know where you came up with that number, but we'll have to talk. So here's the deal. This MRI shows a disc herniation, which also shows degenerative disc disease, motor changes that probably set in over the course of years, no less months. And also, 
even it, there doesn't show enough of a high intensity in the disc to actually show that it was an active inflammatory pathology, but that's on an image I didn't show you. So basically, I can tell by looking at this pathology that, first of all, it predated by a long shot the patient's complaint of back pain. So in the very least, that says, wait a second, maybe we could do something. It's not necessarily surgical, right? Okay, so this patient underwent a transframal epidural because the surgeon who was doing it in this case said, I only do transframal epidurals. Well, it's like I only have a Phillips screwdriver, but what happens if you have a, a slotted screw? Then they got transferred to the pain doc in the group who did a, he said, well, maybe it's facet pain, so they did medial branches. And my writing joke for those is, that's great, but don't sedate your patient before you do the medial branch block because the patient, of course, is gonna say, I felt better. That's a kind of a false positive for that injection. So they had a facet ablation too, right? But they had some other things as well. Then they tried sticking a needle in the SI joint, saying, well, maybe that's got, you know, maybe it's sacroiliac. But everything was just randomly thrown at the patient. So what do you see here? This is the slice right here where the disc pathology is. You see how you have a little tiny protrusion coming out, effacing the nerve root, but really not compressing it. And here you got nice wide open IVFs for the nerve root to come out too. So question number one, which nerve root is it affecting? It's L5-S1 disc, but what's the nerve root? If it's going to be causing something, what's the nerve root it's going to maybe contributing to? What was that? Okay, so I heard some L5, some S1. Show of hands, who's saying L5? You definitely have to come to the imaging study session class on Saturday. Who's saying S1? S1 wins. You guys are right, because it's affecting the, it's abutting the S1 nerve root inside the canal. Is that a compressive lesion? Not really. So if anything, maybe it's an inflammatory pathology. Have you ever seen a disc pathology on an MRI where you've given the patient an oral or an injectable steroid and the symptoms go away? Yeah, thousands of times, right? So if we repeat the MRI, is the disc pathology still there? Of course it's going to be. So you created a scenario where you have a disc herniation and the lack of a presence of a pathology, you know, the presence of a pathology, but the lack of a clinical presentation. So even if you were going to use this imaging study, what would be a really good procedure to consider? We used an intralaminar epidural because, you know, theoretically we wanted to get the medication right where the disc pathology is, so we went intralaminar L5S1. So you have to be careful because not all people are going to have all the tools in their toolbox in spite of their best intentions. But that, in this case, made a difference. So the nerve root was inflamed, right? Possibly. But not necessarily compressed. So that became an interlaminar epidural. What about something like this? I also put this one up in this session, in the, in the imaging study session, because we had the patient on the left that was basically a 27-year-old female who was working in a warehouse got an, more of an acute injury of her back with pain radiating down the back of the leg all the way to the foot. Sounds like what, sciatica? I hate to use the term sometimes. What does the MRI look like? Looks pretty normal to me, right? What is, so if you have a patient who's complaining of all this pain and no one bothers to put their hands on the patient to determine whether or not there's anything that correlates with that, but, you have it, but all you have is a normal MRI to go with, what do you think the patient is doing when they say, give me my pain medications? Medication seeking, maybe? What if you're the workers' compensation insurance company? What does that suggest to you for them, from their perspective? Malingering? 
but the patient on examination had a full-blown evidence of a radiculopathy. Well, that's kind of a little, that's a little bit of a contradiction, isn't it? So I cheat because I can do an electrodiagnostic study, and we do things like evoke potentials or my, or my go-to one of choice, which are admittedly hard to get these days. If you can find a dozen people left in the country doing an evoke potential, I think that would be a lot. But we can quantify a radicular pathology from every single nerve root from C4 to S1, because I won't do S2, just based on where you'd have to stimulate for that one. And then not only can I tell you what's there, I can tell you what's causing it. Is it compressive? Is it inflammatory? And to what degree of severity? Because that plays a role in what I might do with respect to that patient. So that's one of those things I do miss by not having a hands-on clinical exam, but we'll have to talk about that at another level. But this person on clinical examination had an L5 radicular pathology that your examination can localize. Does that make sense? Yeah, because the nerve root was inflamed, causing a radiculitis. And if you think about it, and I think I used the example if, you know, if you... If you're wearing a ring on your finger, I can actually am wearing a ring on my finger. So I think last year at some time, I did something stupid, and I hurt my finger, and my finger swelled up. Man, it was a real pain to get that ring off. I almost had to cut it off. But what did that ring start doing once my finger started swelling? Constricting it. How big is the IVF where the nerve root comes out? Depends on the patient, but it's a pretty tight hole. So theoretically, the nerve root can swell upon itself and cause a compressive pathology, but would that show up on the MRI? And the answer is no. So the MRI appears normal because the MRI cannot identify radiculitis, although I did give you guys a little tip that there are some newer imaging studies, thinner slices, higher resolution MRIs that might actually give us an interesting picture of that nerve root, but I don't think they're ready for prime time yet, but stay tuned, you'll probably see them in a year or two. We contrasted that to the guy on the right that was a 65-year-old farmer who fell off a tractor and developed the same exact radiation of symptoms down the back of the leg all the way to the foot. And can everybody agree that he's got a pathology at L5-S1? But his back exam was relatively normal. You know what his problem was? He fractured his hip. Because he was asymptomatic up until an hour before the MRI was done. The MRI was done in the ER when he presented with a complaint. How about this one? Same 27-year-old female on the left. And I think in the imaging study session, I pointed out that this is the one of the, and I've actually got some even worse ones now, but this is one of the worst. It's on my top 10 list for the worst MRIs I've ever seen because every pathology known to man was on this MRI that we ever talk about. It had spondylosis, canal stenosis, foraminal stenosis, scoliosis, anterior herniations, posterior herniations, facet hypertrophy, you name the pathology, it was in the MRI report. I kid you not. So I, the patient comes in, the only thing I can find on my clinical examination was a gluteus medius trigger point. I was so convinced I was going to find something neurologically, I did the most thorough evoke potential I've ever done in my life as well because I looked at every single nerve root from T11 to S1 bilaterally, so that's a lot of nerve Nothing. Textbook normal. So what do you do if you have a gluteus medius trigger point? You inject it. The guy gets up off the table and says, Doc, I think you got it. And I said, don't worry, it's going to come back. And it did two weeks later, but not as severe. So when he came in, we injected it again. And then when he came in, when it was time for that next two-week follow-up, he called up and canceled it because he was doing really well. 
and we never did anything for him again. And he was back building houses for Tabitat for Humanity. So the worst MRI I'd seen in years has no clinical relevance to the patient's clinical presentation. And the joke that I told everybody in the imaging study session two was the only thing that ever came from that was the surgeon never sent me a patient again. And we had a really good working rapport up to that point. So no good deed goes unpunished. So inflammation of a nerve root, we, we treat every day because that's what we get or what we see when we do conservative treatments on patients and the problems go away, yet the pathologies are still there and it never shows up on an MRI interpretation. So while providing valuable information relative to structure, it doesn't tell you if the pathology is clinically relevant. That comes from the exam. That comes from the information the patient is relating to you. So it's all about the history. I contrasted it to this patient, and the reason why I use this one is because this patient presented with the same radiating low back pain to the right lower extremity, following a very similar distribution. But while the other patient had a pathology that can be treated conservatively, what do you see on this patient? Now, I hate to use the term pinched nerve, but does that look like a pinched nerve to you? Yeah, pretty much, doesn't it? So this is nerve root compression as it exits the I or enters the IVF, in this case of L4, L5. So, what's your name? What's your name? No, your name. AO. AO? Okay, that's close enough. So you can sit there. So if I'm squeezing his wrist because that's a compressive lesion, is an oral steroid going to fix that? Is an injectable steroid going to fix that? What's going to fix that? Surgically removing my hand. But would you want to subject that patient to conservative therapy over a number of weeks, risking the patient for getting worse? How about if we medicate the patient to take the edge off their pain so that they seem to do something and then they hurt themselves more? Are we putting the patient at risk inadvertently? If we give them something for muscle spasms because they're inevitably gonna have some kind of muscle guarding saying, don't move, this is wrong, are we gonna set them up for a risk of further injury? The answer is yes. But I point this out because all too often, what does the surgeon say before they're willing to do surgery on a patient? You have to fail conservative therapy. But when you have a pathology that's that severe, there isn't a conservative therapy that's gonna help for that. And anything you do to wait lessens the likelihood of a favorable outcome and subjects the patient to further risk or further injury. Not a good scene. So this patient required a minimally invasive discectomy and did really well. So how about this one? What does that patient present as? You have an extruded fragment coming into the canal, right? And I kind of gave it away in the imaging study class session. So this basically stops the patient in their tracks because normally when you bend forward, what happens to that disc herniation? It sucks back in, right? You also can stretch some of the ligaments in the area, maybe open up the IVF to create more space. So those patients have an antalgia bending forward. What if you bend forward though and it puts all the structures against the pathology or causes the pathology to herniate out more? This is like I can take any one of you in the room here and stick a marble in your shoe and say, do me a favor, walk down the floor normally. Is that going to happen? No. So these patients can't bend, can't sit, can't twist. They're just stuck in one place. And a lot of times it's axial pain because if the, if the extruded fragment spares a nerve root, it might not cause a ridiculous presentation. So what does the surgeon say for axial pain? We don't operate on axial pain. Well, again, it depends on the pathology. I had to beg the surgeon to operate on that patient. 
And then he, he agreed to do it with the sole purpose of proving me wrong. Don't, I love when those happen, because my favorite saying is always being able to say, I told you so. So here's the case. This case is, the, the guy is actually, so when I first saw him, it was probably late 2000s, I think, is when this case was. So he was about my age, basically. But he was a fireman. So the case history here is he and another fireman were carrying a stretcher up a flight of steps, and the other guy slipped, and he twisted, and it pulled something. So his presenting complaint was pain, numbness, and tingling in the, around the inguinal region and the anterior lateral thigh. Okay? Everybody got that? So if the pain... Well, what happened was they sent him to the doc in the box. So the doc in the box is standard for workers' comp. They really, they take x-rays of their back, that's the first. And so they're trained to say, well, do you have back pain? And the guy says, well, yeah, I get back pain all the time. Ooh, wrong thing to say, wasn't it? Did they ask him about really where his pain is? There's not a pain diagram, there's no question, it's just patient complains of pain, inguinal region, anterior lateral thigh. That does show up in the record, history of back pain. So from that point forward, everybody's concentrating on the back pain. What should they have been concentrating on? The inguinal pain and pain of the anterior thigh. All right, 1,000 points. If somebody told you those symptoms, what's the condition that first comes to mind? What was that? Moralgia parasthetica. I heard it somewhere in the room. So, okay, remember I like using analogies? So I'm going to give you mine from moralgia parasthetica. You'll never get it out of your head. It'll be funny as sin. We call it Tom Jones disease. And do not ask me to sing because I can't do that. But you remember Tom Jones? You know, it's not unusual to be loved by anyone sitting on the dock of the bay. Am I dating myself? So Tom Jones used to wear really tight pants, right? Remember those really tight pants? So when Tom Jones would sit down, the pants would pull on the inguinal region and irritate the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, giving him numbness and tingling on the anterior thigh. Thus the funny name of Tom Jones' disease for myalgia parasthetica. How do we treat that? Well, we inject it, because that's always a good thing, right? Put a little steroid by the ligament that got torn. Different pants. Well, if it was Tom Jones, yes. But from the patient perspective, we treat that by usually doing a local block, anesthetic and steroid. And then we use something like a topical um, NSAID, off-label, because remember that's only indicated for osteoarthritis of the knee in this country, but it's indicated for like everything under the planet in the rest of the world at twice the strength and it's over the counter. But for whatever reasons, that's okay. We'll write it off-label so the patient has something to put on it over in the meantime. And then it's like, say in a couple of weeks. And more often than not, it resolves and we're good to go. If it doesn't come back or if it helped a little bit and there's still something there, we might take a step backwards and look to see is there something else going on? Did we have a sacroiliac problem or some sort of other thing going on with respect to the pelvis? Is there something else we can look at as to why it's there? And I'm okay with that. But our concentration is on the patient's complaints and the actual injury, correct? So here's what happened. So the patient gets referred from the doc in the box to the orthopedic surgeon. The orthopedic surgeon does initially, well, the x-rays are from the doc in the box, and then orders a lumbar MRI. So the lumbar MRI identifies multiple levels of degenerative disc disease, L3, L4, L4, L5, L5S1, with some degree of canal and foraminal stenosis bilaterally, and also, to a slightly lesser degree, more cephalad. Okay? 
This is one of those patients, he's a big, stocky, muscular guy, but he is blessed with a really tight canal because of his short pedicles and kind of a large diameter cord. So he's sort of got a congenital stenosis, which is fine because these patients typically electrodiagnostically are normal because if that's how the body developed, guess what? That's how it functions. So the surgeon says, well, let's order some therapy. So they send him for physical therapy of his back. Well, the physical therapy they did for his back involved exercising and core strengthening. What are you aggravating when you do that? Hmm. So then they said, well, the physical therapy didn't help. Let's do an injection. So they scheduled him for an L5 transforaminal epidural. Okay. I'm not saying an epidural is not on the proper differential diagnosis here, but if the distribution of the symptoms is in the anterior lateral thigh, what would be the nerve root or the dermatomes or even myotomes that might affect that? L23. Would we expect an L5 transframal epidural to be clinically effective? It's kind of like that uh, anterior cruciate ligament repair for the meniscus tear, right? We expect that to fail because clinically there's nothing supporting it. So it fails. So he tells the patient, well, that didn't work. We're going to have to, hold on to your horses, do a minimally invasive surgery. Okay, when you say minimally invasive to me, you're doing something like making a small incision, dropping a tube into there, throwing in some instruments, and making a small little whatever, removing that disc, sealing everything back, putting a Band-Aid on it, and the patient can be back on the golf course by Friday. That's a minimally invasive surgery. Even these things they advertise on television for minimally invasive laser spine procedures, or even the newest, that ultrasound one, which I'm still trying to figure out. Okay, those are minimally invasive. That's not what this patient had. You ready for this? This is what the surgeon calls minimally invasive. He tells the patient that things looked a lot worse once we got in there, so we had to do a lot more. Do they carry the hardware in the hospital? No, all that has to be ordered in advance. He knew exactly what he was gonna be doing in this case. So that was a line of BS. So this patient ended up having what's called a trans-1 axial lift procedure, where they drill a hole up through the sacrum, into the body of L5, into the body of L4, and stick a rod there. And then because he figured, I'm gonna make sure nothing moves, I'm gonna put interspinous spacers in the back and facet screws. Oh, and you know, the MRI did say L3, L4, and that fusion only went up to L4, L5, so I'm gonna put a posterior lumbar interbody, you know, a plif, basically, at L3, L4 as well. Wow, I hate to see what he calls invasive, right? So let's fast forward now, four weeks post-op. The patient used to say on every visit, his pain was a nine out of 10. Bad idea, because we know that visual analog scales are very subjective. Well, the patient now can't sit, can't stand. He's in constant, severe pain, nothing's helping. And he said on a scale from one to 10, my pain is a thousand, and I should have called my pain before a one. It's nice to have something to have as a reference point, right? So here's what happened. So the surgeon gets him back and he does a follow-up imaging study, which is the CT scan and the x-rays post-surgically. So the x-ray shows a vertebral com body compression fracture right here where the plif compressed onto the axial lift. So you can see the vertebral body compression fracture inside the fusion. 
And then the interpretation also said the methylmethacrylate used for the fusion squirted out of the confines of the spine, and there were radiolucent rings around the axial lift at L4 and S1, suggesting the fusion, fusion is not taking so well so far. Would the patient be in extreme pain because of the compression fracture? You betcha. Should this patient have ever had this procedure to begin with? No. What should he have had? Myalgia parasthetica, an injection, and some topical NSAIDs. Look what happened because somebody was not paying attention. This happens more often than you will ever know. Half the patients I see, and I'll show you a couple more examples, really are having that. So this surgeon, this became a, a medical malpractice suit, obviously. And I will tell you, it settled for a million dollars and it was settled within minutes after the deposition, literally. Because the cover-up was worse than the crime. Because the physician writes in his record, after getting the imaging studies back, everything looks great on imaging study. I don't know why the patient's in so much pain. He also couldn't answer the question where the hardware came from, because wouldn't you have had a schedule in advance? And he didn't know that we'd also obtained the letter from the company, the device manufacturer for the hardware, that said he had requested it weeks in advance of the surgery. So he was toasted. He's no longer practicing in Virginia either because he had another malpractice suit about the same time. Not my patient, though. So how about this one? This was a patient that was, this was one of the ones I actually saw at Evans Army Community Hospital. So this is one of those when we had that little preceptorship program. So what do you see here for the pre-surgical patient? Again, a little tiny bit of a disc bulge. This is also a big muscular stocky guy, also blessed with hypertrophy facets and a relatively tight canal for the size of the guy. But you can see the disc herniation right here, and it's causing a little bit of foraminal canal stenosis, but it's actually causing significant foraminal stenosis because he's got such tight spaces that little disc is making a difference. Some of these patients have such big canals and large IVFs, you can have such a huge herniation there that you can put a freight train through it and the patient wouldn't be symptomatic. So the anatomy makes a difference too. So what bothered me in this case is we saw the patient post-op and he's coming in with the same complaints as he was before. He can't put any weight bearing on the leg. He's hopping around on crutches. The surgeon writes in his record that basically everything on the post-operative MRI looks great. He doesn't know why the patient's there. He thinks he's malingering. But here's the post-op MRI and you see the same exact disc pathology. So they kind of did a hemilaminotomy, which is why you see the chunk out of the bone. The pathology was still there. It wasn't decompressed. So you can't even believe everything you see in an opera report, because you know what this patient actually needs? He needs a repeat or revision of the procedure done by somebody else, because this guy does not deserve to be ever to see our, our veterans again, and, I, and our soldiers again. And I wrote that to the base, you know, letter to the base commander, because I was extremely upset about this case. So how about this one? So here we go here. We have a patient with right-sided back pain that's constant, leg pain that's intermittent, sort of both of them varying in intensity. Where do we go with this? What do you see? Anything that stands out? L5S1 looks like there's a little bit of disc desiccation, right? Here's another thing. This is a really good one to talk about just from the standpoint of imaging studies, too. This is a technically deficient MRI of the lumbar spine, meaning it doesn't meet the criteria of the American College of Radiology standards for lumbar MRI. Why is that? And did anybody even bother to point that out, even in the facility that apparently does them wrong all the time? When you do a slice, you're supposed to have the slice parallel to the disc space. 
Where's the slice on this one? It's sort of parallel to the film, so it doesn't go through the disc itself. And there's supposed to be three slices per disc, by the way, too. This one had like two, and they weren't even parallel to the disc base. So it, by any standard, it's actually deficient MRI. I think they should do it again, and we, should, or we shouldn't have to pay for it. That would be an easy way of getting someone to do it, once again. So here's our patient. I'm going to show you examples, and I did this last night while we were having drinks at a reception at the bar. I basically was arguing that there are some objective findings that we can have on a patient that are extremely important to get that are often missing, more often than not, from a patient record. So what's your name? Amy, Amy, everybody, everybody, Amy. Stand up for a second, Amy. Okay, what I want you to do is make a muscle and show them your biceps. She works out, right? Okay, Amy, turn around, stand here. Now what I want you to do is contract your quadratus lumborum for everybody. <laughs> How about your lung isthmus muscles? Yeah, that ain't happening, is it? Because those are not muscles that we voluntarily control, are they? But if you bend a patient over an exam table and you can palpate those muscles, that are in spasm, then that makes all the difference in the world because that becomes an objective finding. So I have what is arguably the world's largest collection of pictures of patients' backs. I can't even count them, but I know it's like 20,000 or something like that because I take pictures of my patients. Because if I bend the patient over an exam table and that shows an asymmetrical muscle spasm that I can take a picture of, I'm going to document that because I use it not only to document the presence of something, but I also use it as an education tool for the patient, and I use it to demonstrate the effectiveness of whatever treatment we apply because we can see a change present that you can quantify. Let's say you had the patient with that normal MRI, and you're worried about prescribing opioids because you think the patient might be medication-seeking. Does the presence of that pathology that you can see on their back and take a picture of now support the efficacy for prescribing something to that patient because you can see that something's there? I've actually been involved in a couple of malpractice or negligence cases where something happened, but the presence of those muscle spasms were able to substantiate the pathology so that you were able to say, yes, this patient did require some treatment. This was not throwing out pills like a pill mill necessarily. Dosing was another story, but at least the patient did warrant something, right? So in this case, you have a spasm of the longismus on one side, and we're going we're to do this later too, and a spasm of the quadratus lumborum on the other, and you can definitely see the difference from left to right on that one. So here's the rest of the picture. So the patient's complaining of back pain. Remember, right-sided, that's constant, leg pain that's more intermittent, following the static distribution. So this patient has had everything known to man for treating low back pain. They had physical therapy. They actually had some manipulation, too, um, of the lumbosacral region. They had oral steroids, injectable steroids, facet blocks, sacroiliac injections, epidurals, transforaminal, facet, you, you name it. There was everything this patient has. So I get to see the patient, and when you get the rest of the details, I took the picture, because remember, I take pictures of patients. The patient had antalgic posturing. So while I'm doing my examination, during the part of the exam where, she, where she's standing, the whole time she's standing, she's doing this. So she's putting all her weight on one leg and then everting the leg with bending the knee. Make sense? So those of you who do a lot of myofascial stuff, what's that a protection for? How about a piriformis syndrome, right? Because what the piriformis does is externally rotates the leg. 
So if I, take, if I put the pressure on the other side and I externally rotate the leg and bend the knee, I'm taking pressure off that piriformis entrapment So because the piriformis can irritate the usually the pronal division of the static nerve, but it can be a variation, right? So it's antalgic posturing for a piriformis entrapment. What is the radicular pain, or I should say the pain pattern for a piriformis syndrome? Same as the low back or very similar? Yeah, except a lot of times patients will say that the pain's starting in the buttock and going down rather than at the back, but there's variations to the theme. What I found when I examined her, and these were the muscles that are in spasm, the longismus and the quadratus lumborum. The longismus muscle, those are your erector spinae, they go all the way up the back. Well, where they attach is the low back, right? So what a muscle does is it contracts to shorten. When it shortens, it crosses a joint, it pulls the joint closer. Everybody agree with that? Stand up for a sec. So if I'm a muscle and I'm pulling over here, is there a chance if I'm pulling on this for a long time that where that muscle is pulling on or attaches is going to get sore or irritated? Of course. It's like a fasciitis and enthesitis or something along those lines. Well, if the muscle attaches at the low back and it's in spasm all the time, where are you going to feel the pain? Where the attachment or enthesis is. So you get an tendonitis enthesitis, so it becomes a misdirect, right? Here's another little clinical pearl. How, many of, how often do you see patients that say the pain goes off to the side? Is that the distribution of the nerve root innervating the area? No. But if you start palpating the patient, you might find that there's an involvement of the quadratus lumborum because the insertion is more lateral on the iliac crest. So this patient had that. So here's the biomechanics, especially if you guys are, are physical therapists or something. You're all going to agree with me, right? Chiropractors too. So when the quadratus lumborum contracts, it pulls the ilium up, so it rotates it forward, right? If the ilium rotates forward, what happens to the piriformis? It shortens. Well, it should say the distance increases, so the piriformis perceives as tighter. Because as you flex, if you remember the sacrum is like a wedge, but it's a wedge shaped like this. So as you rotate it this way, it pushes the ilium and the, you know, and the sacrum apart a little bit so the piriformis has to work harder. Thus, you get a functional piriformis syndrome or a functional piriformis entrapment. But the underlying cause of her problem here was something called thoracolumbar junction syndrome, first identified by, by Manier in the 70s. I mean, when I first started seeing these back in the 90s, I remember being in a clinical meeting and I'm thinking I must have stumbled upon something really cool because we're finding all these patients that have problems somewhere between T10 and L2 and everyone's treating their back pain. We go up and treat the pathology somewhere at T10 to L2 and the patients are getting better. And then someone gets out of the meeting and comes up to me and says, have you ever heard of beignets? Let me give you the reference. It's like, oh man, I thought I, thought I discovered something new. So since then, I can tell you we've seen it thousands of times in varying different distributions, and we've gotten pretty good at figuring out which one of the variations of the theme it is. But the most common that we see ever is the inflammation or irritation of the T11, T12 facet joint. And if you don't believe me, how many of you have spines in your office? A little spine model. Got a lot, right? So when you get back home, take the model, Give it a little bit of an extension to stabilize it, and then twist it to give it a shear force. And you're going to see that shear force goes right through the T11, T12 facet joint. Because the lumbar facets are sagittal, so they allow you to bend forward and back, but not twist side to side. 
the thoracic facets are coronal, they allow you to twist and flex, but you have ribs in the way, so you can't do 100% rotation, right? But T12 doesn't know what it wants to be when it grows up. So it has lumbar facets on the bottom, thoracic facets on the top, so when you twist the lumbar spine, the first place the shear force goes is T11, T12. So when you're palpating that patient, you're going to see spasm of the longissimus, and you have to lay them down, but when you lay them down, when they're in weight-bearing, the quadratus lumborum is usually there, unless the nerve root is irritated, and that's another variation of the theme, but in this case, the, the non-weight-bearing, the quadratus lumborum abates. But the longissimus did not, and when you hit the, the T11-12 facet joint to palpate it, the patient sounds like a squeeze toy. They yelp. So our ultimate treatment on her was we basically treated the T11, T12 facet joint with an intraarticular injection because that's the facet that was inflamed. The, in, the injection goes into the facet that's inflamed. Some of it leaks out of the capsule, so even if there was a little bit of a radiculitis there, it'll get some medication. And then we really didn't have to do much to treat the sciatic-type radiation because the piriformis in this case was more of a secondary pathology that would resolve on its own. But another variation of the theme is if it's been stuck like this for a long period of time, they might have some sort of a sacroiliac dysfunction that might require manipulation or injection or stretching or something as well. Again, you read the patient and you fill in the details. And sometimes it's like taking off the layers of an onion. So you treat the first thing, and then you re-examine the right after, see what improved, and see if there's something else that's hidden, because it might require a treatment as well. So there are some patients where we've actually had to inject the sacroiliac joint as well, and do manipulation of that, or just do an injection of that too. And I even had one, probably a couple years ago, the patient, remember the anatomical anomaly where the pronial division of the sciatic nerve pierces through the piriformis instead of traveling underneath it? So that patient can be asymptomatic all of their life. And then all of a sudden, once it becomes symptomatic, now it's hard to unravel because every time they sit, it pinches the nerve. Every time they step off, it pinches the nerve. There is no thing that they can get into to stop aggravating the pathology. So in that case, we actually had to do a peroneal nerve block into the piriformis muscle. And that becomes a little tedious because Sometimes when you get a piriformis injection done, some of the interventionalists will inject it by the tendon on the trochanter. But is that where the nerve is being pinched by the muscle? No. So you have to get really careful and inject it right where you're never supposed to put a needle if you're doing a needle into the gluteal region. So fluoroscopic guidance becomes extremely important. All right. So our goal, now that we've had an introduction to how some of these things get a little wacky, is we want to talk about some of the different causes of back pain. Now, there are red flags. We're not really going into them much today because our goal is I want to give you some tips and tricks for the 99 percentile of patients that are coming into your office. Although you do have to be able to recognize red flags, so I will tell you that if you see something like unexplained weight loss, fever, symptoms getting really bad really quick, okay, those are problematic. And I'd be the first to tell you that I've seen everything from dissecting abdominal aneurysms to metastatic disease and everything else on patients that are being treated for back problems that nobody was looking for. So it does happen. And it's been at least a half a dozen times I've had a rescue squad leaving my office with a patient, but it's not from anything I did. It's because I'm calling them because I don't want the patient leaving the door because I'm worried about them. So that becomes a little bit dicey. So what are the causes we have of back pain? Well, top of the list is a disc, right? 
So if we go by the classic model of disc herniation, or that famed pinched nerve that I hate to use that term and try and avoid, you can have a couple different variations of the theme, can't you? That disc herniation, like that patient with the L4, L5 pathology, could be compressing a nerve root. That's one kind of a pathology. But I've also heard a couple of other speakers here talking about more of an inflammatory pathology. Let's say that you get a disc herniation or a disc tear. That disc could cause the release of inflammatory cytokines like tumor necrosis factor alpha that can then cause the nerve root to become inflamed because of its close proximity. So that can account for a radiculitis. Does that make sense? So we have an inflammatory type pathology, maybe because that disc is a excuse me, abutting that nerve root but not compressing it, but we can also have that classic disc compression of the nerve. What about facet joints? We've all heard of facet-mediated pain, right? So the facet joint can be inflamed, but remember, I think in the neck and upper extremity class I was, session, I was pretty good about pointing out how that same model of a facet irritation can inflame the root as well because the nerve root exits right alongside the facet. So if you get a moderate to severe inflammation of the, of the facet joint, it's going to cause a radiculitis as well. So here's the cool discussion point on that one. So if the facet joint becomes irritated and that causes the nerve root to become irritated, could that cause a radicular pain? Of course. Is that a referred pain or is that an actual pathological component? Pathological component. So I would argue that that requires treatment. So in the normal scheme of things, if we did a diagnosis by a series of spinal injections on that patient, we might try a facet injection or a medial branch block. Let's start with that. So if we do a medial branch block first, you might block the branch that innervates the medial, the, the, the facet joint and the multifidus muscle in the area, but does that actually block or change the facet joint pathophysiologically? And the answer is no. So you might get some improvement, perceived improvement of, of the facet pain, but it doesn't affect the nerve root. Let's say we went in and did a transframal epidural. Does that affect the facet joint? No, but you might get a temporary block of the nerve, right? And that might calm it down, but because the facet joint is still inflamed, what does it do? It comes back. So the intraarticular facet injection sounds like a better procedure for that particular case scenario, does it not? So let's say we inject the facet joint, which blocks the facet pathology, but because the radiculitis is still there and, be, and could become self-perpetuating, the patient still might have radicular symptoms, so when they come back for a couple weeks later, everything is still sort of festering. So the right procedures even can overstep the problem. So in clinical situations like this, we go outside of the box and we'll do an intraarticular facet injection in combination with a transferaminal or an interlaminar epidural. So you get both parts of the pathology at the same time. You sort of mitigate your ability to get confirmatory diagnosis, but who cares? We traded it for a successful outcome, which I think confirms the diagnosis, right? So we do think outside the box and do things. We'll combine injections that you might not have done at the same time normally, or we'll combine an injection with a manipulation or a stretching or a therapy or some other treatment. Because often, the two treatments together give you an effect that neither one would be able to do on their own. So, What about muscles? So muscle, muscle pain has a couple of interesting implications for the back, right? So if you have a muscle that's in spasm for a long period of time, what happens to that muscle regarding the pathophysiology and the, the ability of eliciting pain? You get pain in the belly of the muscle, right? Build up of lactic acid. 
You can get pain at the tendonous insertions or the origin because of the constant pulling, so you're getting an enthesitis, tendonitis. But you can also have a strain of the muscle. You can have a tear of the muscle, so you can have a pathology in the muscle itself. So, but here's a cool thing. We often see muscle spasms on patients, right? That goes without saying. But you're going to notice if you start palpating or examining the patient when they're in weight-bearing, if you lay them on your exam table, that might change. Certain muscles might stay in spasm. Certain muscle spasms might resolve. So what does the nerve do, or how does the muscle spasm occur? The nerve has to tell the muscle to become hypertonic or contract, right? So if the nerve is irritated because it's inflamed, would that cause the muscle innervated by that nerve to become hypertonic, potentially? Yes. So if you lay the patient on the table because the nerve is still irritated, the muscle spasm still is there. Make sense? That would call that like a primary muscle spasm. On the other hand, if we took the patient out of weight-bearing and put him on the exam table and the muscle spasm disappeared, that muscle could be more of a guarding mechanism. So that becomes part of the secondary presentation that we might not be treating directly. I think I used the example in the neck and upper extremity session about, you ever turn your head really quick to one side and feel that shock-like sensation all of a sudden and you're not going anywhere and then your body says, oop, you're okay, I'll let you turn your head? Well, the same thing happens. You know, the body is an interesting machine. So it has all these proprioceptors and nociceptors all around the spine. So if it perceives some sort of presence of a problem, it might put things in spasm to stabilize it because it says, I don't want you to get hurt more. You especially see that in the cervical spine where everything is highly innervated. But you'll even see it in an extremity. If you break your finger, what happens? You're going to move your finger so much? Pretty hard because you're getting muscle spasms saying, no, don't do that. Every segment at the spine is considered a joint. So facet joints, the disc is considered a joint. But what about other joints like the hips or the sacroiliac joints? You know how many times we see like our 65-year-old uh, farmer that fell off the tractor? That was a hip problem. We see hip problems all the time that are being mistaken for back problems and vice versa, actually. So the patient gets an x-rays of their hip, and just because the x-rays look great, they're telling the patient's coming from the back. But who says the hip can't be inflamed and still look good on x-ray? Well, that happens, especially if you tear something. So we had a one not that long ago. It was actually a cool patient. The, the hip x-ray looked dead on perfect. But they had a labral tear in the front of the hip. And you want to know why it was painful? Because the x-ray and the MRI, well, I have to say, the MRI actually picked up the labral tear. But because that wasn't something that they normally pay attention to, it sort of went right over everybody's attention. But the labral tear stood out on the MRI like a sore thumb. It just went untreated. So they ended up doing injections. I think they were using ultrasound injections on that patient to treat the labral tear. And that actually worked helping it heal. But I can't tell you how much back pain treatment the patient received in the interim. So basically, we have a lot of different things that can cause pain. And the running joke is, how likely is it that the patient has multiple pain generators going on at the same time? Pretty high, especially the longer they have a pathology as everything else sinks in, right? So. We start our voyage when I listen to the patient, basically. So you have to tell me what's going on. How did it occur? What makes it better? What makes it worse? And that sounds like the generic questions, but there's so much information buried in those statements because that's how we get our bearings and know where we're going. 
because a lot of things that the patient tells you gives you information about what might be causing the problem, especially when you start getting to the exacerbating and improvement factors. It sometimes gets dicey when you ask them how it happened because even sometimes they don't know. And then sometimes there's a red herring thrown into the mix that doesn't make sense. Like the patient thinks it was because um, they bent down to pick up something. I, that happened to me once. It was actually funny as sin. The patient works in a cell phone store and insinuated that picking, bending over to pick up the cell phone is what caused his back pain. And I said, well, how do you know that? He says, because I was fine when I moved the piano on Saturday. <laughs> Got to love workers' comp patients. And that was a true story. So listen to the patient, ask the right questions, develop that history. And I think there was a good session here on history taken and engaging the patient. But also pay attention to temporal factors. I think I was talking to someone last night, they were telling me about their pain is really worse at night. So they had all these cancer screenings done, but everything's negative, which I'm glad for them, but it's worse at night because the position that they're sleeping in is aggravating their pain pathology. That's a problem, too. So sometimes you have to ask the right questions. You know, if the patient says, man, when I get out of bed in the morning, I am ridiculously stiff. It takes me like an hour just to move around or I have to take a shower and it frees up a little bit. And, but then as soon as I start doing more activity, it gets worse again. What does that tell you? We have an inflammatory component. So maybe an anti-inflammatory medication or a steroid is going to take precedence over an opioid, right? Because you know that there's an inflammatory component. How about you know, anything where you do to increase the Valsalva's mover, like when you cough or sneeze, and that causes pain? Well, that might be you know, indicative of a kind of a herniation or an nerve root compression setting. But what about, you know, the patient says, oh, if I bend forward, I'm fine. Well, what are you opening up when you bend forward? That disc pathology, the nerve root, the canal for spinal stenosis? What happens if the patient says, you know, I can bend forward, I just can't go back. Well, that's consistent with that diagnosis. What happens if the patient can lean back like that? Are you thinking it's a, bless you, are you thinking it's a disc herniation with nerve root compression? Highly unlikely, because what does that do when you lean back? So a lot of what the patient tells you is informative. And always, yeah, always ask them to point, draw, touch, feel, because that's all extremely important too. So, as I pointed out in previous sessions as well, there is no way to really do a, a clinical exam. I mean, there's no single way to, or to, for me to tell you to do an exam of a patient because it's going to be highly dependent on the patient that you have and the way that you've been trained and the, the tools that you have at your disposal. But I could say that there are certain things you should do or can do to help you formulate your exam, which is really where we want to go with this. So the one thing I do say is, look, you have to, we're all worried about time. So we try and organize components of the exam, like all the things relative to the, having the patient standing, I do all the patient standing. All the things relative to the patient lying supine, I do while they're lying supine. All the things when they're sitting, sitting. So I, I might do things out of, an, out of order, but I've sculpted this exam to minimize movement of the patient who might be in pain, so you might be flaring things up if you have to move. But it's also efficient for me because I can knock things out faster. So a couple of years ago, I had run into one of my colleagues that I used to see all the time at pain meetings. And um, I was going to be in, you know, in his city, actually, for the weekend for something. So I wanted to go catch up and meet him for lunch and say, how are you doing? So he said, come on to the office. So I get there in time for his last patient. And he was all proud to show me how of a good back exam he does. So he does this examination on the patient's back. And then we're, going, we're, we're at lunch. And he says, so how would I do? And I said, that was the best Broadway play audition I've ever seen. 
And he looks at me like, come on, Glick, what do you mean? I said, well, you did every single thing that I would recommend for a thorough exam, but you were all over the planet. Every time I turned around, the patient was standing, sitting, lying, twisting, bending. It was nothing was organized. So I said, what made you choose that order? Well, he said, that's the way they're printed on the form. So he did work on an EMR and straightened that out. But I said, you know, look, let me do your exam on the patient because your exam is different than my exam. So let's do the next patient together, but let me do it. Let's see where we go. I did the same exam he did in one-third the time. So just being efficient with your time and patient movement makes all the difference in the world. So he sent me a bottle of wine, actually, on that case. It was, on, on that, it was kind of funny because he said he's getting out of the office now an hour earlier every day, and I was kind of laughing about that. So be efficient. So I am spoiled, and I was spoiled because I never had a high-volume practice. The most amount of patients I ever saw in a day was 12, and I did start at 7 in the morning, and I think I finished at midnight by the time I was done that day, but that was 12 patients. So I would do, at best, an hour and a half was a new patient consult back in the days, and then it became like 2, 3, 4, so you can tell I'm not seeing a high volume of patients. So I don't have to schedule them, you know, I get to schedule them relatively apart, so I don't have like a whole number of rooms or something to go to. But I would always want to greet my patient in the waiting room personally, because in the workers' comp model, I trust nobody. So I want to see how they're behaving in the waiting room before I even bring them back. So I'm peeking out the window long before they even know they're being watched. And then when I go and introduce myself and bring them back, I'm watching how they get out of the chair. I want to see if it looks like they're in some distress. I want to see if they're giving me characteristic behaviors of someone who's in pain. Because we've all seen it. Man, they jump out of that chair, and as soon as they get to the front desk, then they start limping down the hallway. My favorite one, by the way, was so this guy is walking with a cane. He's taking little baby steps, moaning, groaning, everything he does. So I did my exam on him and really found something relatively mild, but nothing to explain the, the degree of pain in his complaints. I thought it was all BS. So I remember calling the nurse case manager, and back in the day, I had an office that was on the sixth floor of a building when I first got started, and I had this floor-to-ceiling glass window looking over the trees in the parking lot, but no one can see it from inside the office because that was in my private office. So I'm talking to the nurse case manager, and telling her that I think we have a patient who's probably embellishing a lot. And just about the time when I'm telling her that, he walks out the front door, tosses the cane up in the air like he's in a Broadway show, catches it, runs over to his Jeep, hops over the door, and hops in and drives away. Let's just say he didn't get any more further treatment. But you look at your patient, see if things are consistent, because that makes all the difference in the world. So my observation starts with the patient. In this case, I'm giving you the pictures with the patient in the waiting room while we're doing the history, because observation gives you a lot of information. So here's patient number one. What do we think about that guy? What's he doing? The whole time he's leaning forward. Is that antalgic posturing for something? Yeah, because in this case, he actually has a little bit of a symptomatic disc herniation. So he wants to bend forward because it's opening up the L5-S1 foramen and it's sucking the herniation in a little bit. That makes sense. So, and as you do the exam, all the rest of the pieces fit together. That's consistent. I'm happy. So what about this guy? What's he doing? A little hard to see, but he's actually leaning back in the chair. 
Would he be leading back in the chair if he had a disc pathology that was symptomatic? Well, the MRI did show a disc pathology there, by the way, but it was more of a protrusion, I think. But uh, so when you lean back, or let me revisit this from another direction, because some of the textbooks here are wrong, so I have to say sometimes you have to throw out the textbooks. If you have a facet joint that's inflamed, what will happen if you stretch it? It will hurt. What will happen if you compress it? It will hurt. So a lot of times, even though they tell you if you take a patient and extend them to stretch the facet joint and it hurts, that that's a facet problem. But that also could be antalgic posturing for a facet joint because they don't want to stretch the facet capsule that's inflamed. Does that make sense? So this guy's leaning back into the chair because he's got a facet pathology. I will tell you, remember the case that we talked about inflaming a nerve root as well? Okay, he's one of these guys. So he's inflaming the nerve root because the facet is inflamed too. And our ultimate treatment of him did involve intraarticular injection of a facet joint and a transferaminal epidural concurrently. My question to you is, which side was the facet pathology on? Anybody want to take a gander? I'll give you 10,000 points on this one. Right, left. <laughs> left, right. <laughs> left side. Sure, raise your hands. Right side. I think we're about 50-50, so still no discussion. All right, this guy's on the right. Why is that? He's leaning towards the right side. What is straight leg raising? It's a nerve root stretch test, right? So if you notice, he's also bending the right leg because he's taking the stress off that nerve, which is inflamed. So his was a right-sided L5-S1 facet inflammation with a right-sided L5 radiculitis. And it's all supported by the presence of the exam. So when the exam coincides with the patient's clinical presentation, all looks beautiful, we come up with a good game plan. How about this one? This one gets a little bit trickier because what is this patient doing the whole time she's talking to you? She's leaning away from something, right? So SI joint. So what this patient will be doing is keeping weight off the SI joint. So that is a typical clinical presentation that a patient with sacroiliitis might have. Another variation to the theme, though, too. Because if you had that thoracolumbar junction syndrome and you had in weight-bearing a spasm of the quadratus lumborum rotating the ilium up, well, the pelvis does what? It moves kind of in conjunction with each other, right? Those of you guys who played with biomechanics and mobilization manipulation, if one ilium goes forward, where does the other one go? Back. So that would give you like a pelvic distortion or a pelvic rotation. So that's also going to make it uncomfortable to sit flat, especially if you get piriformis entrapment there too, right? So the variation of the theme are there's going to be some sort of either sacroiliac or some sort of thoracolumbar junction, but that's not an antalgic posturing for the back. How about this guy? He was walking down the hall. What's he got? What was that? Hurt knee. Hurt knee. Nah, his knee was actually fine. You ever heard of a psoas contracture or psoas spasm? So the psoas comes out and goes underneath the trochanter, so it's lifting up the leg. So these patients are fun to play with because if you lay them on their back and you push their back down, their leg comes up. If you push the leg down, their back comes up. Okay, I'm not saying play with your patients. But that's how they behave. And this is an interesting clinical presentation because what makes something like this problematic is you think, okay, let's do some psoas stretching. Well, the psoas can create its own compartment syndrome. It is the one muscle that I can think of in the body where the nerve that innervates it for its motor function pierces through it first, then comes back and hits its motor point. So a spastic psoas 
can cause its own nerve entrapment to maintain itself. So if you try and stretch a psoas that has a spasm, you can potentially make it worse. So that requires a regional block to help unravel psoas. Okay, so we've observed the patient's behavior. We're observing their, ba their presence while they're sitting there. We have to look at part of the exam. Can everybody see the muscle spasms that you see on this patient as it differs from left to right? It's pretty dramatic, isn't it? So here's a cool statement. Just please don't quote me out of context because I like using it, but I laugh about it too. So if I told you that a visual analog scale was a, an objective indicator of the presence of pathology, you would tell me that I am nuts, right? Because it's subjective, yes? But if you use your pain score as a straight edge to prove that there's a difference from left to right, you have validated the objective findings of a pain score. Gotta love it. So we look at the patient both in weight-bearing and in, and in non-weight-bearing positions. And we make note of not the presence of muscle spasms. We want to know what muscle is that. So I remember being in a deposition. It was more like a... Um, it, well, it really was a deposition, but it was sort of a group discussion deposition, so it was more like an arbitration with uh, an orthopedic surgeon, myself, and an interventional pain guy. And I think the orthopedic surgeon and I were on opposite sides of the spectrum on this one. So um, he's, in his record, it says muscle spasms, and I'm saying, great. But my question was, what muscle was that? And he said, well, I'm not sure. Well. You should be sure, because if you examine the patient, you can write it down. There aren't too many muscles in the back to learn. So uh, my record describes what the muscle spasm is, and the degree that it is present, his did not. So who wins on the credibility side for documenting patient care? Right. So anyway, we look at the presence of muscle spasms. We palpate them. We do everything. And for those of you who have not palpated muscles, we'll do an example once we get to the exam here. You'll be able to see it is so easy to palpate. It's not funny and you can just close your eyes and feel it blindly, even if you've never touched the back or a muscle before. These are examples of the presence of muscle spasms in patients' back, and you can see half my backs are post-surgical, right? So this one's a long, you know, rectus spinae, um, a longus miss. There's another one, longus miss. Here's a quadratus lumborum. There's a quadratus lumborum. Can you see how dramatic it is? I'm, I'm expecting, and you know, back in the day when I started doing this, I had one of the first little cameras from Sony that I bought in the 90s, that camera was like $2,000. And it was a pain to get the picture off the camera to be able to use it for anything. What do we use now? Cell phones. Everybody's got one? I mean, proof of the pudding, you can open up my, my picture database, my photos, anytime on my phone. And I'll guarantee that you'll be able to see backs or imaging studies or something because I'm taking pictures of patients. But I use it again for documentation. I've got imaging studies here. Here, there's some, well, those are cars, those are family, but you get the idea. Here. Um, here you go. Backs, patients' backs. See that? Imaging studies above it. Comes in handy. And once you have it in your phone, it's easy to get into the record, so it works. Highly recommend it. So a picture's worth a thousand words, especially if you don't have any other objective indicators of the presence of pathology. And these days, when you have everybody standing over your shoulders trying to regulate what it is you do, um, you think it's a good idea to have that documentation? Yeah, I do. 
And sometimes that might be the only thing that you have to say, this is why I needed to be treating this patient. This is why I was reasonable in providing this treatment. And here's a cool thing. So I'll tell you the story in the patient on the right only because it's a little strange. So this patient was a relatively young woman who was involved in a car accident. So she had been bouncing around for about nine, 10 months with everybody not giving her complaints any credibility because you know imaging studies didn't look that bad. No one really ever did a thorough clinical examination. And I'm just talking to her, but I can see her. She's not standing straight, right? And I pointed this out, and her, her husband was in the room. And he says, listen, doc, you're the first person that ever noticed that. But I have to tell you, I mean, we just got married a little while ago, and we had our honeymoon on the beach. And until this car accident, she, her back was pinned straight. And he said, I'll show you. And he pulls out the picture of his wife in a bikini on the beach on their honeymoon. And you know what? She was pinned straight. I said, can I have that? <laughs> he said, if you want it. I put it in the record alongside the picture with her not so straight because that became an important part of the documentation when everybody thinks she's malingering to say, well, wait a second, this isn't right. Look at the week before the car accident. Luckily, we treated it and then had the picture of her standing straight too. So I use this one as a perfect example because the patient has some nice artwork so that you know it's the same patient. So you know I'm not pulling your leg. So the story here was this patient was a worker's comp low back injury that was probably about three years old that came from New York that moved to Richmond, Virginia. So we got her as a patient because she had to change physicians. So this was long-term medication management by the time she got to us. So I'm looking at her and say, well, why do we need to do long-term medication management? Why don't we just treat the problem? And she's like, huh? Well, you have, in this case, a thoracolumbar junction syndrome variant, which had mild irritation. I think it was of the multiple errors, like T11, T12, T10, T11, L1, L2. It was like across the region, which happens as well, especially if it's been there for a long period of time. So our, and since I couldn't localize it to a single facet joint, instead of doing an intraarticular facet injection, we did a medial branch block. Because if you try and manipulate this patient, the multifidus muscle spasms are pulling so hard. Here, give me your arm. Make a muscle. If I'm trying to manipulate this, am I going to get anywhere if there's in spasm guarding it? No. But if I inject it, relax. Then it's like manipulating jello. Plus, you put the steroid where the problem is, so you increase the likelihood for healing. So we're thinking out of the box, doing two things together, where either treatment might not have been long-term or effective on their own. So we did lumbar medial branch block at T10, T11, T11, T12, L1, L2, and you can see these are the fluoro images from the medial branch block. Then this was the patient's back immediately post-injection, but pre-manipulation. Can you see the longissimus spasm here and the quadratus lumborum spasm over there? Can everybody see that? Longissimus over here, quadratus lumborum over there. And then this is immediately post-manipulation. Where'd the spasms go? They're gone, aren't they? So now the picture demonstrates the efficacy or the effectiveness of my treatment. Now here's where it gets fun. So the patient had her problem for three years, right? What set in over all that time since she's had pain? Neuroplastic changes, central sensitization, make sense? We talked about that, yes? Oh, when did we talk about that? Wednesday, we're talking about it again on Saturday. Wednesday, right? So patients on long-term medication, neuroplasticity set in, she has central sensitization, everything hurts. So the patient comes in for her follow-up evaluation two weeks later. 
all of the examination findings that I did on her that were present before are negative now. And when I retake the pictures of her back, the muscle spasms are still gone, too. You can feel them, but I wanted to put them in the record as documented with a photograph. So what do you think we're doing with the patient now? You ask the patient, how do you feel? And what does the patient say? I feel no different because sensitization set in. So now we're using cognitive behavioral therapy, right? You're putting your hand on the patient's shoulders. You're showing him the pictures. You're walking him through the fact that all of the examination findings are still gone, that you're still doing really well. But because you've had your problem for so long, all these other things have come in. Your nervous system has made some changes to maintain your pain. We're on the right track. We're going to start dialing back on your medications. These patients become horrified when they think they've been stable on long-term opioid use. And she was on a muscle relaxant, an opioid, and an anti-epileptic. We started weaning her off all three at the same time. It took 12 weeks to get her down to nothing. So it took one day, 20 minutes to treat her problem. It took me 12 weeks to get her off her meds. Well, at that point, she settled the workers' comp case, got a job, and went on with her life and was really happy. She had one exacerbation. A year or two later, came in. I think she got adjusted once. And that was it, over and done with. And I didn't even think it was the same pathology. It was slightly different. So who said you can't fix a chronic long-term problem? You can. But what did we do different? We took a step backwards. We sort of reconsidered where we were and then did something different. And then we evaluated our effectiveness for treating it and then had to deal with all of the sequela that jumps in or that, that you know, baggage, if you will, that occurs because you've had the problem for so long. And we make a difference. These are some other pre and post manipulation, just to prove a point. Another one of those patients standing crooked, went pin straight. This one, you can see the spasm before, immediately gone after. This was one of the soldiers we saw at, I don't know if that was, I don't know who that is, that was in Richmond. So he was at Fort Lee. So his problem was when he bends forward, you can see the quadratus lumborum here just jumping right out at you. That one's tight, but this one was even tighter. And he actually had a longissimus spasm going all the way up too. So the furthest he can bend was like that. He couldn't go any further, and he complained of a pulling tight pain and couldn't move another inch. Immediately after manipulation, where was he going? He was touching his toes. That wasn't even his primary problem. His primary problem was actually a neck and shoulder issue. We, I just took care of his back to be nice because there was a workers' comp issue for the neck and shoulder, which we addressed too. That required a little bit of like some creative thinking too because he was being treated for a rotator cuff problem, but he had biceps tendonitis. So no matter how many times you inject the shoulder for a rotator cuff or the therapy you do for a rotator cuff, is that going to help you if you have a biceps tendon problem? Not really. So another story. So. What we do when I look at these pictures or these patients' backs, not just the pictures because I'm palpating, I am paying attention to what muscles they are. And I show the patient as part of my consult. Even when I'm doing a telemedicine consult, I pull up the anatomical image and say, this is the muscle you have. When I put it in my record to take, show the picture, I actually put the anatomical image with the muscle spasm in it too. And yes, my records are really over the top. But my records become an educational tool, not just for the patient, but for the physicians that I work with or the physicians that see that record too, or the clinicians that see those records. Because I never miss an opportunity to educate somebody. So we're palpating not just muscles, we're palpating bony structures as well, aren't we? But palpating bony structures and other things like that get 
difficult sometimes because what gets in the way? <laughs> Muscles and soft tissue, right? So you do have to know your anatomical locations. You have to know what direction muscle fibers go and you have to know the presence of where joints are. So if you're not in the habit of doing it, the best way to learn how to do it is put a chart on the wall. Because you can look at the chart, because while a patient is lying face down in your exam table and you're poking around, can they see you looking at the chart? You won't have to do it for long, trust me. And then you'll know, but that's a good way to start. So we palpate bony structures, we palpate muscles. And always look at, you know, look at visualizing the structures while you're palpating them. And if you ever want to note in the record that there's muscle spasms, don't put muscle spasms, note which muscles they are. Big deal. So these are some of the muscles you're going to see in our back pain patients. The most superficial are the longissimus muscle. So here's another little tidbit. We'll give you a tip and a trick for that one. If the longissimus muscle is in spasm, could that cause low back pain? Of course. Could, the, could that patient be complaining about pain in the mid-back? Absolutely. Could the patient be complaining about pain that radiates all the way up the back? How often do we see that? A lot. Well, now you know why. And here's a cool one. We have probably seen hundreds, and I, I, I kid you not, hundreds of patients that we treated their back problem for thoracolumbar junction syndrome kind of thing where you have that longissimus spasm. And patients compartmentalize their problems, don't they? So if they're treating for anxiety, depression, they might not tell you because they're looking at this as a back problem. If they're being treated for a shoulder problem, they might not tell you those details because they think they're seeing you for a back. Do you know how many times that we've made shoulder pain go away by treating the patient's back? Because the insertion point for the longissimus muscle happens to be the ribs. So if you're tugging on ribs in the back of the shoulder in the mid-scapular region, could that cause like the perception of shoulder pain? Yeah, and what happens every time you start doing therapy and rehab on their shoulders? It's not really fixing the problem, but it's aggravating the problem. So the patient comes back for a fall and says, you know, I knew you treated my back, but I didn't tell you I had a shoulder pain, but that's gone now too. It's really cool when that happens. Sometimes I notice, and a lot more often than not, I'll notice it during the exam and I'll ask the patient, do you happen to have shoulder pain? Or do you have a pain between your shoulders? Like, yeah, but I didn't think it was related. So, longissimus muscle, quadratus lumborum, multifidus muscles that go from segment to segment. You notice the muscle fibers go in different directions. The rectospinal muscles go up and down. The quadratus lumborum's going off at an angle, kind of off like a triangle to the top of the iliac crest. So as you're feeling along the top of the iliac crest, you'll feel where the insertion is. And if it's in spasm, as soon as you get to it, when you palpate it, what does it do? Hurts. One of my favorite things to have during my exam is a little, you know, remember the little china markers, wax pencils? I keep that in my pocket because I'll make an X or play tic-tac-toe on the patient's back. But we'll mark up the things that are painful so it makes it easy, or the things that you palpate, because it makes it easy to go back for your landmarks and make sure that it really is. Clinical Pearl, how often do you get patients where everything that you touch hurts? It's like you touch the patient like this, and they go, ow. OK, is that central sensitization? Yeah, maybe, I don't know. But could it also be something else, like malingering or patients that are just really low pain thresholds or something. So that's where you have to take a step backwards and say, listen, I know that everything hurts, and I'm sorry, but the only way that I'm going to be able to help you is if you let me palpate and touch things and only let me know what hurts the worst. It's all about setting the patient up for the right experience. I mean, if you think about this, I stimulate nerves 
somewhere between 25 and, uh, 25 and 35 milliamps, with, which is a pretty good stimuli. So for those of you who do electrodiagnostic studies, nerve conduction studies, that would be pegging a supermaximal threshold, wouldn't it, for a nerve conduction study? So when you zap a patient's nerve, what do they do? Jump. Well, if the patient was jumping during my evoked potential, that would mess up my test results. So I have to prepare the patient for the severity of that stimulus so that they just sit there and lie calmly and don't jump and move. So you can get the patient to do whatever you need them to as long as you talk them through them and inform them. How about the bony structures? Well, can you really palpate a facet joint in the lumbar spine? Not really, because you have all these structures and superficial soft tissue above it, but you know where it's supposed to be. So what's the difference between a multifidus spasm and a hardcore facet irritation? Those of you who do it know it, right? You can feel the fibers in the multifidus muscle that go over a range for tenderness, so that might cover an area, but there'll be a pinpoint spot somewhere in the middle of that that causes the patient to what? Yelp, like a squeeze toy. Right? I know there's a couple of chiropractors in the room that do this all the time, don't you? Is that a true valid finding? You hit that facet that's inflamed, what does the patient do? And sometimes you'll cause the muscle to go into greater spasm, either because of regarding whether it's the multifidus or a longer muscle too. So you know the structures that you're trying to palpate, and I won't go into details, but everybody can pretty much pick them out at this point because you want to see what's tender, what's painful, and you make those specific notes. How about range of motion? Somebody asked me the other day, what's the normal range of motion for flexion? And you know what I said? I forgot. Because I haven't done it in so long. Because I don't care what the range of motion from the textbook is. Because I remember having a patient who came in and she looked like, you know, during the, the second opinion IME she had, they wrote down that she had normal range of motion. Because she had what was normal range of motion for the average population. But this woman was a gymnast slash God knows what, and her normal range of motion, when she bends her head down, it can come out the back of her legs. I can't do that, but that's normal for her. But because her range would fit the normal range for a textbook, they said that was normal. Well, after we treated her and she put her head between her legs, I'm thinking, ooh, that must hurt. So I had the picture of that in the record too. So I don't really care about range of motion as much as what happens. So if the patient's bending forward and they can only go so far and they're telling you they're getting a catching pain, that's important. If they tell you they're getting a pulling pain, that's important. If they tell you, wow, you know, it hurt, but the pain's like better, that's important too, as would be pain on extension, right? So I wanna know the characteristics of the pain, if it's there, and what's happening during the process, I don't care about range of motion because it's gonna vary dramatically from patient to patient. And you'll get the impression when you're examining that patient whether or not you think that range of motion is limited or not. It, you'll get a really good feel for that. So I don't need to know range of motion. How about part of the rest of our physical assessment? Well, don't we do deep tendon reflexes, motor and sensory exams, sometimes part of our general status exam too? Yeah. Okay, so what's the deep tendon reflex for L4? Come on, you guys are supposed to answer the question. Patellar. What's the deep tendon reflex for S1? Achilles. What's the deep tendon reflex for L5? Hamstring. There were a number of people in the room that got that. Show of hands, how many people do the hamstring for L5? I got like half a dozen people. What's the most 
according to the textbook, which I say don't believe sometimes, right? What's the most likely nerve to be involved in the low back from the standpoint of causing some sort of static radiculopathy? It is L5. So wouldn't it make sense, if you were doing a general statics exam and you did the patellar and the Achilles reflex, would that be okay? Sure. But if you're doing a low back exam, would it be negligent to leave out the L5 hamstring reflex? And the answer is yes. You need to do it. There was a, there was a, a malpractice case in Hawaii, and I kid you not, where the surgeon lost the malpractice case because the hamstring reflex was noted to be absent following the surgery which they were trying to base their whole case on made the pathology worse. Uh, I don't think it was there before the surgery, and the surgery was a revision to begin with, and it wasn't that surgeon's fault. So I think that surgeon did the right thing. The only thing missing from his record was the hamstring, because he said in the deposition, I didn't do it. I don't know what it is. That didn't sound so credible. So that was the loss. So all of you are sitting in the chair, right? So take your fingers. I'll take off my shoe for a second. Don't worry, my feet don't smell. So. You can feel the tendon right here for the biceps femoris, can't you? What do you think you hit for the reflex? Pretty much right there. You can do it while the patient's sitting, or if you have, sometimes you'll have to slide them forward on the table just a little bit, or you can have them lying supine and do it when you're doing that part of your examination. There is actually, trivia question, there is a deep tendon reflex for every single nerve root from C4 to S2. Did you know that? I never knew that until some point either. It was actually quantified by a German physician in World War II. So the, the German translation of the book is deep tendon reflexes from, or of the spine, I think, from C4 to S2. It's long out of print. Obviously, because of where that came from, it was never been considered real. I had a, a like a, photocopy copy of that at one point. I'd love to get the book just for the heck of it because I heard it had some really good images in it too. And the paper copies, you couldn't really, you know, it's just a photocopy, it was a bad copy. But I'd love to get one, but it's long out of print. So food for thought, there should be some other reflexes we can play with as well. And I've also lost track of that because I have no idea where it is, having been in several offices and stuff. How about dermatomes? We all know what dermatomes are, right? So we know where the dermatomas in the leg are. Remember our myalgia parasitica patient? Well, that's you know, anterior lateral thigh, which could be L2, L3 dermatomes. Whereas the L4, L5, and S1 dermatomes? L4 is like sort of the medial aspect of the foot and leg. You know, L5 is sort of the dorsum of the foot. S1 is the lateral side. We agree to that, right? But what if your patient has a myotomic radiation of pain? Well, okay. How many of you guys were in the neck and upper extremity session the other day? A few of you. So one of the exercises I gave everybody to do, if you remember, was I had to hold your arm out and then push from your triceps into your biceps so you can compress part of the brachial plexus. And when you held your hand down, you started feeling numbness in your thumb. And the longer you held it, the more it started to radiate up, right? Okay, so the pathology is that a proximal compression will cause axonal loss that will be more affected distally first. Does that make sense? So. If we had a compressive injury following the, let's say, the L5 nerve root, and the L5 dermatome is on the top of the foot, would you expect to see numbness in the top of the foot? Are there textbooks that say if it's an L5 disc problem that pain might stop at the back of the knee? Have you heard that? I have, but that's an erroneous description. Okay, I'm going to get a little 
too much personal information here, but anybody ever sit on a toilet for too long and have their legs go numb? I mean, you're all laughing, but half of you are nodding yes, because you know that that happens, right? So did that numbness stop at the back of your knee or go all the way to your foot that felt like it was falling asleep? Yeah. So the textbook that says L5 gives you radiation to the back of the knee, that's BS, because what that is is actually a myotome. Because what is L5 the primary nerve innervator for in the back of the leg? Hamstrings. Interesting. So part of our exam is we test motor exams too. So to do a complete motor exam of the legs, lower extremities, you have to really do a whole entire motor exam. Well, I had to go to the ER a number of years ago for to rule out a DVT. And boy, did that take convincing because you can't get me to do anything like that. So I was practically dragged there by one of my colleagues and good friends. So I'm in the ER. And the, low, the exam that the ER doc gave me for a motor examination of my lower extremity, which, by the way, is contracting in really bad ways, was dorsiflex your toes. Well, I could do that. Not a problem. Motor exam, normal. Don't we have any muscle, other muscle activity in the lower extremity? I think so. So when we grade a motor exam, you're grading on a scale from 1 to 5, and it doesn't stop there because you can have like a 4 plus, 4 minus. So you can really tease it out a little bit. And you go from no movement at all to full strength against resistance. But you have to look at each of the different nerve innervations for the lower extremities. So a competent motor examination is internal rotation, external rotation, dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, knee extension, knee flexion, internal rotation, external rotation of the leg, and flexion extension of the hip. Okay, you could have done a whole motor examination of the lower extremities faster than I just described it. Is there any reason not to do that? Because you need to be able to see what's going on from the motor standpoint, because whatever muscle you might perceive weakness in will correlate usually with the level of involvement, because that's one of the things that we do to try and localize it. Okay? And that's in any textbook. So here's where we're going to get to the fun part. So I need a volunteer. But I would like a volunteer who, number one, is not bashful, because you're going to be sitting in front of the room. And number two, has back pain. And I know someone that's here that I've used in the past, so we're not using her again. <laughs> but she did fit the criteria of getting better, didn't you? Yeah, she does, and she's smiling too. So who do we got down here? This lady right here. Okay, this lady right here. Who are you? Come on, Mary. You're about to be embarrassed. Hard to do. That's a really good line. Are you a friend or a colleague? Oh, yeah. Okay, so we're getting that from a friend and colleague, so we know we're on good ground. So I don't want you to, I never do this with real patients, okay, but I don't want you to tell me anything about your back pain. We are going to look so we can all see for ourselves. Fair enough? Okay, so come on up. So what I've done is I have taken a group of orthopedic maneuvers. Now, there are, there's several textbooks that list all sorts of orthopedic maneuvers relative to the lower back, orthopedic neurological testing. So there's probably about 200 different ones. So the running joke is I used to know about 70 by name at least, probably about another 50 that I knew the maneuver, couldn't remember the name, and then for some reason everybody always used to want to stump me with the name of a test to see if I can knew what it was. So please don't do that. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to take a core group because we can't do all of them, 
that give you at least a fundamental starting point for being able to tease out some of the different things that we look that are commonplace. Does that make sense? And there's always more avenues to take depending on what we find. So you can isolate it and go further out. And there's some really good references for textbooks. But this is our starting point. Okay? Can you pop the lights on? All right. So welcome to my office. And do I have permission? These are all the witnesses that you're going to allow me to touch you and to examine you. All right, so this is our informed consent. And if we aggravate something in advance, I'm sorry because we're going to do some poking and prodding, so I apologize. All right, but the good news is hopefully we'll get some benefit out of it. So first things first, one of the, what's the, one of the first things we said we would do when it comes to examining our patient? We watched her when she got out of a chair. She looked like she was a little bit distressed, but I couldn't tell because she was already leaning forward. But we're, we want to visually and palpate the low back, don't we? So do you mind showing your back to the audience? Okay. All right. So first of all, I can already tell that we have some fun things going on in her back because all I did was have my hand there for two seconds, and I know that something's there. So hard to see through the loose clothes, but bend forward for me. Keep on going. Okay. So right here, here's the quadratus lumborum. See how I can grab that? So if I poke on where it inserts, it's going to be tender. What's the one on this side? I kind of can't find it. I mean, I, I know how to palpate deep, so I could find it. But it's not really super, it's not very prominent. So it's really not spasm. But this one, I can just grab every time. I mean, I can close my eyes and grab it. Um, what's your name? Rosa? Rosalie. Rosalie. Come here, Rosalie. This is like a group effort, right? You don't mind, do you? Okay. Come on. I'd let all of you papate her back, but then she would probably get upset. Okay, Rosalie, take your hand. I want you to close your eyes. Put your hand over here. What do you feel as compared to this side? See the difference? Yeah, you can easily palpate it, right? And then what do we do when we hit something that we know is tender and we want to verify that it's painful? What do we always do? We do it again because you measure twice, cut once, right? Okay, so that muscle, the quadratus lumborum, you have two of them, one on either side. They're like a triangle that goes down laterally. So right away we know that she's going to have some pain that radiates laterally because it's going to be coinciding with the insertion of the quadratus lumborum. Okay. I can also tell you that her quadratus lumborum is rotating her hip and you know, her pelvis anteriorly. How many people can see where her belt line goes? You see how it's higher on the left? Interesting, isn't it? Okay. So, can, do you mind if I lift up the back of your shirt too? Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. So she also has not as dramatic. But come here, Rosalie. Okay, so put your hand over here. Feel that side. Close your eyes, too. Now put your hand on this side. Which side's tighter? The left. It stands out like a sore thumb. This one might not photograph as obvious, but I think actually if you put a straight edge on it, it does show higher, doesn't it? Yeah. So this is the longissimus muscle. And you can see that that's in spasm as well. And the longissimus is going to run all the way up to between the shoulders, so there's probably going to be some point up here. Yeah, it's right there. Probably going to be some point up here that's not so fun either, is it? So now the question is, what's going to account for that quadratus lumborum spasm? This is one of the cases I gave you when we first started. Remember the thoracolumbar? Most often cause of back pain not having to do with the low back. What did I say that was most likely the cause of that if we had to play the numbers game? 
T11, T12, remember that? Okay, so without going through the, so for time's sake, we're not going through the whole game, but if the ileum's rotated forward, what's it gonna do to the piriformis? Make it tighter, so if I press on the piriformis, what do you expect? May I? That was easy. What about the other side? Not so much. And there are other muscles other than the piriformis. You have to get used to being able to palpate the difference between gluteus medius, gluteus maximus, superior gemellus, and that kind of stuff. But that's a start, isn't it? Okay. I'm going to be lying on your stomach for me. Sorry about the table, because it's a little hard. I'll give you my sport jacket if you'd like. <laughs> okay. So, don't go anyplace yet, because you're going to be here for this one, too. Okay. So when she lays down, what's the first thing I said, the difference between like a primary and a secondary muscle spasm? Remember, it might change. Okay, palpate her quadratus lumborum now. Tell me if you still feel it. Gone. So that's part of the guarding mechanism, not part of the primary pathology. So she's my witness. And we have not rehearsed this because I never met these two people prior to this. So as I palpate the spine, you can get your landmark for T12. So this is T12. This is L1, that spinous is L2, and you can go all the way down, okay? Here's the iliac crest, so this is L5S1, this is the PSIS. These are all the things that we're gonna be palpating. So first things first, L5S1, notice anything? I don't. Four, five, nothing. Three, four, nothing. Two, three, nothing. One, two, nothing. Pretty, pretty solid. So look out for a landmark, here's back at T12, here's T11. What, did I, what just happened when I palpated the T11, T12 facet? Did you guys catch that? She said, uh-oh, and I'll do it again, because remember we measure twice, cut one? <laughs> right, it's right, right there. She's not so happy, is she? But, so have, how, how long have you been treated for back pain? Four or five years. So far in a clinical exam, what are we finding in the low back? Nothing. Where's the problem so far? Ooh, pretty interesting, isn't it? So, let's have you lie on your stomach. So flip over. And actually, even before you do that, just sit up. So sit on the edge of the table. Okay. So we finished our palpatory exam. We talked to the patient about where it hurts, what's going on. We look for a clinical correlation. So far, this is a really cool surprise, because remember, we're playing the numbers games. I couldn't have picked out a better case. Thank you. <laughs> so... The first test that we're doing is minors. What is minors test? Well, minors is what I would have observed if she didn't have to climb over the table to get up, because I would have looked for what she was doing when she gets up from the seated position. Because a patient who really has a problem, they're gonna kind of work themselves out of the chair, aren't they? So minors is one of the tests that they use for that whole malingering thing, because you want to look and see if there's some validity to the patient's behavior. It has nothing to do with being specific for anything, but it serves as a starting point. So what's the next one? Bectoruse, what's that? Okay, why don't you slide your shoes off for me if you don't mind. So basically, Bectoruse is a sitting straight leg raising. So while I have the patient sitting, because remember I said we are judicious with our movements? So while she's sitting, I'm gonna get my DTRs. Um, I might do my sensory exam, I usually do my sensory examination while they're sitting as well unless it's a weird situation that I do it when they're lying supine. And then I jump to my motor exam. So my motor exam starts with, it's going to be, hold your feet out. No, just feet. No, yeah, there you go, turn them in. Push them down. You know, say you're pushing, it's hard to do it when you're standing on the side. P pull them up. 
So those are internal rotation, external rotation, plantar and dorsiflexion. Then I'm going to do Bechterus. So what Bechterus is is a sitting straight leg raise because if the patient has a, a lumbosacral radiculopathy, usually L4, L5, or S1, if they go to try and stretch the leg out, what do they do? They go back, stretch the leg out. That one went pretty good, right? Now do the other one. That one went pretty good too. Then I'll finish my motor exam. So then I'll say, okay, push against my hand. Pull back. Push, pull. Push needs to get, push them apart. Pull them together. Bring your knee up. Bring it down. Up, down. I'd say we got a good normal motor exam there, don't you? Okay, so we finished that part of the test. Now we're gonna move on. So that now I'm gonna lay the patient down. So neck gets laid down on your back. Now I'm gonna palpate the abdomen because I wanna look around the abdomen just to be sure because we always wanna rule out some of the red flags. Like I hated when I got that dissecting abdominal aneurysm on my exam table, had me panicking. And I'll auscultate the abdomen as well. And I always auscultate during my examination, so if I had not auscultated her chest yet either, I probably would do heart and lungs while she's here, but usually I'm doing that while the patient's sitting because I do front and back at the same time. Okay. Then I'm going to start palpating some other structures too. Under normal circumstances, I would have the patient put their fingers on the PSIS, and that way you're pretty judicious or careful where you're going because I don't want to be touching things anywhere near places I don't want to be. So I, I, you know what, put your fingers on the two bumps there, ASIS. So if that's the ASIS, where's the inguinal ligament? Right here, right? So if I push on her inguinal ligament, I don't think she liked that too much. <laughs> and this one's not so bad. Well, that one's not so bad. This one is a little tender, right? But that's because the ilium's rotated forward, which is going to put some tension on the inguinal ligament. So, so far, those pieces of the puzzle go together, right? So then I'm going to work on the rest of my orthopedic exam. So you all have heard of Faber-Patrick, right? So Faber is flexion, abduction, external rotation. Patrick is the name of the test. So here's an interesting clinical pearl. Everybody in this room can have a positive Faber-Patrick test. Why is that? Because there's only so much room to the paraphysiologic space of the joint. So if you force it, what are you going to cause? Pain. So you can get a false positive. So you have to be really careful with that. So to do Faber-Patrick, and at least you, there's nothing there to get rude or obnoxious, because you have a wall there, so you're not exposing yourself to anybody, but bend your knee up. So you bend the knee up, and then you externally rotate, but you don't have to force it, because the reality is, if that patient had a hip pathology, it would stand out like a sore thumb without having to put pressure, because if I put pressure on it, and this is your good side, right? Can I make that hurt? Most time you can. Then you can feel the hip. You can, you know, if I used it on this side, here, put that one down, bend this one up. You can feel the trochanter moving around underneath your fingers if you want to do that. So then, that's Faber-Patrick. Faber-Patrick's going to be positive in the presence of a hip pathology and also an inflamed facet, um, sacroiliac joint could also cause it. So where the patient complains of pain, you can differentiate that because you can palpate when you're doing that causing pain and seeing if it's closer to the middle of the back or more to the hip joint. So localizing it is extremely important as well as the elicitation of pain. How do you do a piriformis stretch test? Next one on the list. You can do it a couple different ways. The way that I prefer is while the knee is bent, because we started the flexion, abduction, external rotation, you can stabilize the pelvis and internally rotate like that, because what do you think we just pulled? Another way to do it is if the leg is extended, if the piriformis externally rotates the leg, sorry, which way do you want to go? 
Either way, she wasn't happy with that one. And that one was kind of opposite what I would have expected, by the way. All right, so piriformis stress testing. How about straight leg raising? If there's ever one misconstrued, misunderstood orthopedic test on the planet, it is straight leg raising. The guys who wrote the book, um, uh, what's the white book? They used to, years ago, Mazion is the, um, the orthopedic neurological testing book that was the basis for everyone doing references for all the other books. Mazion said, as did Lasseg, that straight leg raising was the most equivocal of any orthopedic test we do to look at the back. Well, if it's equivocal, why are we doing it? Because it's equivocal, but when you combine it with a bunch of other things, all of a sudden it becomes very, very telling. Because it's not just whether or not the patient complained of pain, it's what happens, where the pain is, and where the pain starts, and what kind of pain it is that makes a difference. Does that make sense? So, to do straight leg raising, you always grab the patient's leg at the, very, at the bottom of the ankle, and you start raising the patient's leg up. But you're instructing the patient, let me know if anything starts to hurt, and then tell me where, right? Not, uh, about four out of five times, the patient always tries to lift the leg for you. So what do you have to tell the patient? Let me do it. Okay. So I'm going to lift the patient's leg, and let me know if you start to get any pain. What would you call that? Pretty normal, right? So now fake something for me. I want you to say, ouch, it hurts right about there. Ah, oh, what moved just, what moved with respect to the position of her leg at this point? What's the only thing that moved with respect to that? The hip. So the next part of this whole thing is, while you're doing this test, you can have your patient, your hand, under the patient's lumbosacral spine, okay? While I'm lifting the leg, if she says, ouch, and the only thing that I feel moved was the hip, that means Goldwaith says it's the hip. Got it? If I'm coming further back and she said, ouch, somewhere about there, I'm feeling that that's where the SI joint starts to move. So I'd say Goldwaith suggested sacroiliac. If it started right about there, that's where the lumbosacral spine kicks in, and you can feel it there too. So Goldwaith gives you where the pain is. Make note of it. So let's say she said, I have pain at about 45 degrees. Well, that's about lumbosacral spine height, and it might vary from patient to patient, so you really should measure it yourself. So then it's where is the pain? Well, it's local to the back. But often a patient's going to say it's going to shoot down the leg. Okay, so you want to lower the leg a little bit, and you want to do braggards and saccards. What are they? Well, braggards is bending the big toe back. No, I'm sorry, that's saccards. I apologize. This is Saccard's. What's that? That's a nerve root stretch test. So if the nerve root was involved, usually L4, L5, L4 or L5, rarely S1, which is kind of interesting, um, that would be nerve root. If I did Braggard's and she did that and it hurt, what would that be? Could be nerve root, but it could also be what's in the back of the leg? Hamstring. So in this case, it would be like Saccard's negative, Braggard's positive, so now we would jump over and do bowstring sign. What's that? Well, for bowstring, you flex the knee at 90 degrees, and a lot of times I'll just rest it on my shoulder. If you push into the popliteal fossa, what are we pressing on? Tibial nerve, right? But if I push onto the hamstrings and they're tight, like hers I can pluck like a cord, what's that? Hamstring. So you'd say bowstring suggested involvement of the hamstring. Because we already gave that little tip about the fact that if the pain goes down to the knee and stops, it's more likely a myotome, think hamstring, not L5 radiculopathy in spite of what the literature says. 
because if it was an L5, the first thing that's going to go is sensory distribution for axonal loss. So you're going to feel pain into the dorsum of your foot. Just food for thought. Okay, what's the next two? The Edwin Smith papyrus is the oldest known medical document known to man. So it has like 48 cases of which the first ones are spinal and head trauma. The very last case is a case of back pain. So the orthopedic test was you have the patient raise their legs and if they can't do that or that hurts, that's a sprain of the spine and the treatment is prostration. So the oldest known medical document is basically a Valsalva's maneuver, essentially intrathecal pressure increase, and the treatment is manipulation. Gotta love it. So what I'll typically do is I'll ask the patient to hold their legs up. Hold them up. She can do that without problem, can't she? If they had some kind of a nerve root compression because of a disc pathology or symptomatic spinal stenosis, do you think the patient could do that? No. And then the other way of doing it, because that basically is leg lowering, Milgram's you just bring the legs up yourself. Now sometimes you'll have patients that are trying to pull your leg and they won't be giving it any effort. You know how you test for that? You just put your hand on the abdomen, lift your legs up. You know they're gonna be making an effort if you can feel it. If they're not making anything, you know they're pulling your leg because you wanna see that there's an effort because if that patient has pain, you'll know it. But you know why that test is extremely important to me? Because if I saw disc pathology on the MRI and this patient can do that, I'm thinking we're still going to have an easier way out that might not be so dramatic. And if you really want to test that theory, lift your legs up. Hold them up for me, okay? Hold as hard as you can. If I do this against resistance and the patient can still hold their legs up and not elicit pain, what's the likelihood we're going to find a conservative treatment for that patient rather than a surgical solution? Highly likely. So this test becomes telling for prognosis as well. So for straight leg raising, what was the level where the pain started? Where did the pain occur? What kind of pain was it? And then how did it behave with respect to the other maneuvers? Bilateral leg raising, what's that? So let's say she complained of pain at 20 degrees, which we already said was the hip, right? If I bring the two legs up together, and then all of a sudden I can go all the way up to the top, what am I protecting when I move them both together? Basically the pelvis, really. So you're protecting the SI joints and the hip. So if we get more movement out of it, that means that the problem is either going to be likely in the hip or the um, SI joints. But, if the, but let's say she complained of pain at 45 degrees before, and, it, and I thought it was at the low back. If I did both legs together this time, what happens to movement being sheared to the low back faster? Right? Because now the lumbosacral spine moves right away. We get less movement before she says, ouch. Got that? Okay. Don't move, we're not over yet. Okay, so we finished all of our basic orthopedic maneuvers to get a little bit of a gauge of what's going on with her lying on her back, and then we have her lie on her stomach. So now you get to turn over. Yep. So if you didn't do your L5 DTR yet, you can do your L5 DTR now. Where do you get it? That's the tendon right here for the biceps femoris. You'd peg it with your reflex hammer and you'd see the twitch right in the muscle. Okay? So now I'm going to do my palpatory examination that we already did because we cheated before, but now's the time when I would have done it. Okay? So we already know what hers are, but then I'm going to do these next orthopedic tests. The first one is hips. So for hips, you bend the knee at 90 degrees and you basically stabilize the pelvis and you just turn the leg internally and externally rotate. What's the only thing that's moving? The hip. So that's a test for the hip. 
Then you do knockless. What's that? Knockless is a test for a root stretch test like Bechterus is for the lumbosacral plexus, but this is the lumbar plexus because you're stretching the thigh, so this is L2, L3. And L3, L4, which is another issue. There is another unnamed orthopedic maneuver that says if you do this and the butt rises, that that's usually a sacroiliac involvement as well. And it just so happens that when I do hers, her sacroiliac joint jumped there too. So she has a little bit of an SI distortion, but we don't know if it's pathological or functional just because of the quadratus lumborum yet, which as you remember is twisting the pelvis, because if one goes one way, what happens to the other? Okay, so we do the same thing on both sides. And it actually goes more on this side. So this is the side, you can actually see my finger moving. So that's the side where the sacroiliac joint problem is gonna be too. So that's knockless. And then I heard somebody talking about sacroiliac joint dysfunction, listing all the tests that they do to find it the other day. I won't say what session that was, but they missed the most best orthopedic maneuver for sacroiliac problems, and that's yeomans. So what is that? For yeomans, you have the knee bent at 90 degrees like you had for hips, and you stabilize the pelvis, and so it's not going anywhere. And what happens is you, relax for me, you bring the leg back because you should feel movement in the SI joint. There's not a lot. There's only like 12 degrees of movement on average, could be a little bit less. But if a patient who's stuck, you go to do this, it's like hitting a wall. Hers is moving, although are you complaining of a little discomfort there? No, okay. So it's moving, so that's okay. Let's do the other side. Relax. All right, you ready? And that one's moving a lot more, isn't it? So this one's moving less because it so happens to be still stuck anterior. It's moving, but not as much. She's got a little bit of a fixation in here, but that's because it's been being pulled up by the quadratus lumborum. It's been in spasm the entire time. So this is actually a very mild issue that we'd probably end up manipulating as well in addition to tre treating this particular pathology. So you can stand up if you'd like now too. So another way of looking at the SI joint is, and actually before you even stand up, here, here's a cool one. So Glick's test, what is that? This is, a, this is a practical, this is a funny story. So what happened was I was doing another one of those unnamed orthopedic tests. So have you ever had a patient that can't bend down because they have back pain, but yet all of a sudden they sit down and they can put on their shoes? What changed? They shouldn't be able to bend forward when they're sitting down either. Well, the first thing that moves when you bend forward is your hips. The next thing that goes is your sacroiliac joints. So if you're sitting down like this and you can bend, what's stable? The hip and the SI joints. That means it's not coming from your back. So it was like a sitting belt test. Belt test is a supported abs where you do the same thing. So now you can stand up. So what happens is you have the patient bend forward. So bend forward. Tell me it says out somewhere. Come back up. Fake that it says out somewhere. <laughs> she said ouch and goes that far and says it's pulling, right? So she comes back up. If I squeeze the pelvis together to stabilize it and she bends down and goes further faster, what did I take out of the loop? Sacroiliac and possibly hips, but at least sacroiliac. If I squeeze the pelvis together and she bends forward even less and says, ouch, what moved faster? The back. So that differentiates between lumbosacral, SI, and hip. And this Glick's test, the running joke is, it was an unnamed version of the same test when you're sitting down and I said, you know, unnamed. So someone said you should call it Glick's test, and I was just laughing about it. And then a couple years later, I saw it in an IME, and I was just laughing even harder. So somebody picked it up from the exam.
And for those of you who do, who like to palpate things, you can have the patient stand sideways and hold on to the exam table or the or doorknob or something. You can put your fingers over the PSIS and you have them bring their legs up one at a time like that. Okay. And that one's not a problem because it's feeling relatively normal. And they'll do the other side. And that one's a little stiffer actually, but as she brings that one up, I'm also feeling movement shift to the other side faster, which is again supporting the fact that there's a mild SI problem there, but more of a fixation rather than an inflammatory component. Because when I went to test that movement for Yeomans, if the patient said, ouch, what do you think it is? Inflamed. If it felt stuck, but the patient didn't say, ouch, it's probably stuck. And if the patient said, ouch, and it, and it didn't move, it would be stuck and inflamed. See how the variation of the theme goes for that? Okay. So what we've ended up with essentially is we have a thracolumbar junction syndrome, that classic thing that is misrecognized or mistreated for back pain, where these patients suffer for years and years and years unnecessarily when it's a really ridiculous thing that can help fix the problem. So if it was a relatively new recent problem, you can just try manipulation or mobilization for those of you who do it, if you're a chiropractor, an osteopath, or a PT, or anyone who does that kind of work. If it was something that's been there and it's been able to sort of fester for years, well, maybe you're going to find it's prudent to inject it first and then do it. She's sitting on the fence because hers is actually there, but it's relatively mild. Maybe we should treat that. Matter of fact, I'll give you that opportunity if you'd like before you leave. Yeah. <laughs> As a result of, of being gracious to be the, the guinea pig for all of yeah. this. So here is... Remember I said having a chart on the wall to localize structures? This is a chart that I was given free ability to save, print, and do whatever you'd like with, so feel free. That's one you can use. We were talking about some of the common things and uncommon things that can cause or be mistaken for back and radicular pain. Thoracolumbar junction, high of the lift, cl classic example. Piriformis entrapment could be you have to watch out for anomalies. Primary, meaning this is actually the, really the problem. Secondary, it's occurring because there's something else going on. So now the other question is, do you ever get any pain that radiates to your leg? Mm -hmm. Which is, in her case, a secondary type piriformis. I'm not going to treat that. I'm going to treat the problem higher above. And then again, we're looking for inflamed joints in the hips and sacroiliac joints and other things that we can treat. Okay. So here's the classic thoracolumbar junction syndrome. The variations to the theme are anything from T10 to L2. In this case, they show a referred pain pattern going to the iliac crest, which could be the quadratus lumborum. It could go to the inguinal region, which could be because the ilium is rotated forward, but it can also go to the hip or the groin because of genitofemoral or ilioinguinal nerve irritation, which would be involved if that was an inflammation or inflammatory component affecting the L1 or L2 nerve roots. Okay. So putting all the pieces together, the whole idea is does everything that we just did from the examination fit what the patient told you in the history? And if so, you try and explain what can account for everything that we just saw. Because the simplest explanation is the best. So the question is, is this a zebra or is this a horse? To the average person, this might be a zebra because you don't necessarily see it that often. But I would argue it's a horse because you probably are seeing it, but you're not catching it. So the reality is a lot of what we see as chronic complicated problems are actually uncommon manifestations of a simple problem that probably could be treated. Because I will guarantee that there's not a single person sitting in this room does not see this clinical presentation day after day after day after day. And how many have you missed? I mean, it's not that, and it's not your fault, it's just that 
no one ever called it to your attention before, and it doesn't show up in any of the routine textbooks. If you want to get this in a textbook, you actually have to buy, I think I put it as a reference, you actually have to get Manier's book, Diagnosis and Treatment of Pain of Vertebral Origin. It's got three chapter sections on thoracolumbar junction syndrome alone. Again, talking about the variations of the theme right down to what might be injected versus what might be manipulated. It's a pretty slick book. I actually emailed it to someone the other day. So it's a, it's a pretty nice book to have as a reference because it, it really is one of the superb references that you won't see a lot of this information in, so I highly recommend it. So did we answer all the questions about the distribution and accountability of the patient's pain? And then I review everything that I did with the patient as far as the exam findings, the clinical presentation, where the imaging study sits into this. Do you have any pathology on imaging studies? Pardon? Did, did you have an MRI or anything done? A while back ago. Did it show anything? Um, four or five disc bulge. Four or five disc bulge. Did we see anything on the clinical examination that would correlate with that today? Nope. So is that a clinically irrelevant finding? Yes. Probably. Did that guide any of the treatment that you've had? Failed treatment. There you go. <laughs> but that's what happens to our patient every single day, isn't it? So what happens when you see something like this? What's wrong with this picture? I think you see some hardware on that. So the problem that you have with this patient is this patient had a fusion of L4, L5, L5, S1, but they fused the patient in spondylosis. You see how S1 is sliding off, L5 is sliding off of S1? With nerve root compression of the L5 nerve roots. Would this patient be in a lot of pain? You betcha. You have compression of the nerve roots inside the fusion thanks to the metal keeping it that way. Would anything that we did today from an exam be relevant? No, because the patient would be so hot to touch that everything hurts. You can't get a read. So there are some situations where your exam findings actually become quite difficult. So on a patient like for me, I'm having to use my clinical judgment based on my experience for cases like this and resort to electrodiagnostic studies. So this has to be elevated to another level. What happens if you see this patient? What would you do? How about cringe? Because the thing on the top here is called the laminar hook. We don't see those too often, but shouldn't that laminar hook be kind of higher up? Yeah, well, the screw securing the laminar hook came loose, so the hook dropped. Then you have this little rod here that cracked. I don't know what the heck that was because it broke, but it was sticking out the other side to begin with, and once again, they fused the patient in L5-S1 spondylolisthesis, but even worse, they call these pedicle screws for a reason, right? The screw goes into the pedicle. Can anybody see that that screw is actually through the IVF? Would this patient be in pain? Yeah, because you have an L4 radiculopathy caused by a misplaced screw, hardware that's broken, plus you fuse the patient into spondylolisthesis, and I have no idea what this piece of metal sticking out the side is, and that's going to hurt whatever it's poking into. This is the only patient that I ever had to have sedated for me to do an electric diagnostic test on. They actually put this patient out to twilight sedation so that we can test and see what the degree of severity was and what routes were affected. That was brutal. I felt so bad. So if the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up, that's when we start doing additional imaging studies. We look at x-rays. We look at MRIs. We look at CT scans. From the functional standpoint, we look at electromyography, but I suggest that, remember, you can't do cookie-cutter studies. You have to evaluate the patient, tailor the study to the patient. We gave you good examples for that in the, um, 
in the neck and upper extremity session, so I won't go into that. If you are blessed enough to have someone in your area that knows how to do somatosensory evoked potential studies, especially segmental somatosensory evoked potentials, which are comparator studies, make use of them because they'll be a really good asset to you when it comes to identifying and quantifying levels of pathology. So with that, I'm going to end with the same thing that I did in the, in the imaging study session. So here's a, a, a 3D CT. So if you ever happen to do a CT scan on patients, which we get a lot because of the presence of hardware, when you read the CT result, it says the patient has degenerative disc disease, basically T11, T12, T12, and all the way to L5S1 with spondylosis of L5S1. And when you read the whole report, it sounds like this patient is going to be like livid with problems everywhere because it sounds really, really bad. But when you look at the 3D CT, which is a CT scan that has 3D rendering embedded in it so you can see it like a three-dimensional model, you're looking at it saying, you know, you have early stages of degenerative disc disease, welcome to aging. You have a little bit of spondylosis at L5, but you have enough IVF room for, to drive a freight train through it. This actually is not a bad thing. This patient turned out to have a sacroiliac problem. It required a sacroiliac injection to treat her pain. So none of the real severe findings on the interpretation had any relationship to her complaint, but had guided years of treatment. So basically, all I recommend is sometimes you have to take a step backwards, think outside the box. Don't be worried about breaking a rule or a guideline. You do whatever you think you need to do to help your patient, and as long as you have a sound, rational reason for doing so, like injecting and manipulating an SI joint together, you're, you can do that. Just document because I will tell you, my records get scrutinized by everybody, especially when I start asking for things that are non-standard, typical things. Do you think we ever get denied the ability of doing something? Very rarely, because the records support it. So with that, I hope the information I was able to give you was helpful. I know it's hard when we talk about facts. I think that the other common question people would like me to do is they want me to start looking at the different treatments we have available and maybe start presenting cases where each of these treatments might be helpful. Maybe we can do that next year. But I really want to just take a step backwards and see if I can give you some tools that you have to make a difference in the way that we evaluate our patients so things like what we see today don't fall through the cracks because there was no reason for you to be going through this for God knows how many years. So thank you guys very much. Um, thank you again for coming to this session as well as Pain Week. And if you're still here on Saturday and you haven't taken the Pain Pathophys sessions or the Imaging Study Deck, you're welcome to sit through my session again. <laughs> I'm the only encore presentations in Pain Week. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. So thank you guys again. <laughs>